This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. Hey, thanks very much for tuning into the show. I appreciate it. Hope you're doing well wherever you are listening from throughout this blue and green world. Now then, to the matter at hand. This is a conversation that features Jekyll Jones from Gangs of Old Ladies and Vegas Rhythm Kings. The catalyst for the chat, though, is the new release, the new single called Raped by Ghosts from Gangs of Old Ladies. This is a killer band, Ghoul, get it? Gangs of Old Ladies, Ghoul, G-O-O-L. Because not just is it a vehicle for Jekyll Jones to mine his considerable talent, the group features Clemens Weyers, Weyers or Weyers from... Karash Angren. I've probably got the pronunciation of both the name and the band name there incorrect, but anywho, if you know, you know who I'm talking about. But Joe Haley from Psychroptic is also a part of it, as is David Anderson, a recent guest on the podcast. He lends his talents to the group as well. Something else, I was talking to Jekyll and he mentioned that uh, Rick Ross, who used to be the guitarist in Death and Massacre, has joined full-time, joined the group full-time as well. So that's a hell of uh, a coup for Jekyll there to get a guitarist of that stature to join the band. But something about this conversation I need to say up front, we don't address the music as directly throughout the conversation. What we do is we just chat. Okay, so this is one of those ones where it's wide open and we talk about basically whatever's been on our minds. Um, So it's a bit light on on the musical front, but um, it's a worthwhile conversation nonetheless because a point that I made with Jekyll is that I love giving people an insight into the person behind the music. You can always look at photos and you listen to the music, but as long-time listeners will know, I try to go deep with a conversation and uncover lesser-known or understood aspects of the individual that I'm talking to, and this conversation is a really good example of that. Um, so, on that note, up front, we talked for about four or five minutes about our families and stuff before we got stuck into a conversation about the impact of COVID on heavy metal. So, that's where things commence. So, you'll hear me make um, not an introduction, but a statement, and we kick things off from there. Anyway, here he is. Jekyll Jones from Gangs of Old Ladies and Vegas Rhythm Kings. Anything that isn't a part of the engine of the government, so to speak, okay? Heavy metal clearly will never be part of that engine, okay? So all of the small businesses, all of the mums and dads doing their own thing, um, usually mums and dads that are renting premises, like Crowbar, a.k.a. Brightside or whatever it might be called these days, um, they just were left for dead, during this, and yeah. this is the shadow pandemic. Absolutely, uh, I'm actually friends with the guy who owns the Brightside and mm. uh, owns the um, Destroyer Lines Touring Company, mm-hmm. and um, he was uh, just gobsmacked, devastated, I suppose. You know, like because we were, um, I wasn't going, but the Offspring had sold out, and mm. a friend of mine was like, oh, "I really want to go." I said, "Really?" He goes, yeah. So I said, "I just." <laughs> Made a phone call and then I had four yeah. tickets for it. He's like, how did you do that? And I said, oh, it's just the magic of journalism. But, yeah. uh, you know, that never happened. And then it just got worse and worse. And, yeah, then the crowbar um, shut up shop for good up here. Um, 
and which was a shame because the last show that we sort of had here was uh, at the inside of the bright side, mm-hmm. and it was the um, uh, corrosion of conformity show. Yeah, I was which, at that. Yeah, uh, those orange amps, man. How good did that sound? And um, I, I was excited because, like, I've been to the Crowbar for a lot of shows. Um, mm. I've done some work with um, one of the guys from Laceration Mantra. It was actually the guy who started Misery, me and Scott Edgar. Oh, wow. Yeah, great tracks track. together. And yeah. I was um, there when they were supporting Marduk and, um, you know, been to some great concerts there. That's where I started doing journalism, actually, because I turned around and Luke LeMay was beside me from Gorguts. Mm. And we just had this chat, and he said, "Oh, you should be uh, in journalism." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so somehow I just got wound up in it and connected with the right people and stuff, and it sort of, you know, mm. went up from there. And then it sort of went down, and I I feel really bad for like I've been lucky enough uh, work-wise. Like my wife's in aged care, mm. and I've switched jobs this year, but still both essential industry. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine what it would be like to not be an essential worker, how are you supposed to pay the bills? Because, you know, the bills just keep coming. And I know, you know, the banks and all those companies say, oh, yeah, we'll work with you, but do, do they? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I just think it would be absolutely terrible. But at the same time, I'm not one of those people who gets science from someone who didn't pass high school. COVID's a very real and very dangerous thing. And mm. um, you know, we have to sort of find a way around it and, um I still can't believe, um, you know, everyone has a right with their own body, but I'm fully vaccinated with Pfizer, have been for months. Mm. Um, second dose, felt a bit shit that night, to be honest, but the next day it was gone. And, um, you know, no magnets stuck to my arm. I haven't had any <laughs> thoughts of supporting the government or, you know, anything like that. <laughs> and I just don't understand why in this age of science when, you know, one of the simplest ways we can defeat this is to actually go and get yourself vaccinated, mm. people are you know, such a such a stink, and to the point that we actually one of our friends on Facebook, Love Adili, was posting absolute nonsense, and I was actually quite pleased to see that Facebook had started um, blocking their posts, saying that they'd been peer reviewed by science platforms and found to be false news. And I was like, well, that's kind of good because social media is great for people being able to share ideas and share ideologies and sort of you know have that sort of freedom. Um, without, you know, the press involvement or, you know, people can feel a bit, uh, a little bit more open-tongued sometimes from behind a keyboard. Hmm. But at the same time, the I think Sasha Baron Cohen made a good example that, uh, you know, mis- misinformation spreads so much faster than the truth these days and that's one of the dangerous hmm. things about the modern era. So, yeah, what, what we're going to do about it, I, I don't know. I just hope everyone sort of rolls up their sleeves and realise that if you really do care about getting music and that back on board, hmm. get vaccinated. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a big thing. I, I think it's just the governments have handled it so badly. It's very hard to know how to trust oh. them. Like we, I mean, our fucking governments have no very, idea. Um, my, this, and originally too, look, when when people said, "Oh, look, oh, the liberals have done such a great job," the liberals didn't know what to do. The guy that wrote all of the stuff in 2020 was an ex-Labor backbencher, because they basically threw their hands up in the air and said, "We don't know what we're doing." And so it was actually an ex-Labor backbencher who came in and wrote most of that sort of policy. You know, I mean, dipping into our own super funds wasn't really an answer. I mean, it sort of helped, but mm. it, was, it, it wasn't really a great answer. And my, my biggest thing with the government is more the fact of things like um, the use of the term vaccine rollout. 
I was just lucky enough because my wife is in aged care and her mm. boss said, hey, there's a, a hub opened up doing Pfizer at the hospital. So I got onto it straight away. But in terms of what I would consider to be a rollout and what has actually happened are two very different things. Like, um, I, I think some alcohol companies have rolled alcohol out better than the government's rolled out this vaccination, you know. It's been sort of put back on you to go, oh, yeah, look, you go and find it, go and, you know, you, you go and search for it. To me, that's not a rollout. And then in terms of, like, the information about it and sort of that sort of stuff, when I went to the hospital, it was great. They had a lot of stuff playing up there to keep you amused for the 15 minutes that you had to sit. And um, there's quite a few police officers and other sort of... Um, social sort of workers that I would consider uh, should be mandatory because they're dealing with the public quite a lot. Mm. And um, a really mixed group. Like You couldn't tie it to any race or ethnicity or any religious. I saw all sorts of people from Sikhs through to, you know, all, all, all different people of different creeds and different age groups too. So it sort of did make me feel happy that there was uh, quite a few people who were smart enough to sort of follow science and actually sort of look for... For, for truth, do you know what I mean? Because mm. you, you don't just sort of go, okay, I'll go and get that because they said, you know, to do a little bit of research and stuff. And mm. I researched the mRNA vaccines and went, no, look, I've got, I've got no problem with doing that. And you don't have polio in primary schools these days because we have a polio vaccine. Mm. You don't really have measles much anymore because we have a measles vaccine, you know. Uh, I just don't understand the, um, the, the conspiracy idea of what the government has to win from this whole thing because, you know, people talk about it being, oh, it's, they're taking away your freedom and taking away your whatever, and it's like the government's losing. They're losing money at a rapid rate. Um, the the top ones, like, you know, ScoMo or ScoMow, as Friendly Geordies likes to call him, jetting in and out of Sydney to me just shows that we don't have the right people in power at the moment because a leader is someone that you should aspire to follow and look up to and, you know, who shows you the right thing to do. And to me, that guy does the absolute opposite of what the right thing to do is. But um, are, you, are you typically, would you describe yourself as a, as a fairly, uh, like a standard Labor voter? Is that who you'd more lean toward uh, in state I, and federal? I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say standard Labor, but I, I'd preference Labor before I preference the Liberals. I, I usually vote Green, to be honest. Um some of their policies are a little bit, yeah, probably impossible. But just the say, idea. How do, you, how do you reconcile their wokeness with mainstream Australia? Um, I, I think the problem is, um, and I'll be honest, that there's still a lot of people, and especially my wife's nursing home, that older generation, that mm. have that white Australia policy in their head. You know what I mean? That. Um, See the world as kind of oh no you know you can't you can't do that Ramadan or whatever else that's that's not Australian that's not the way we do things and it's like well actually my neighbour from next door she's Chinese she's from Hong Kong um, one of my best friends at work is uh, an Indian guy from um, southern India Budapur um, Venkatanam and we sort of have that ideology that you kind of and that's what I like about the metal scene up here is that you you accept everyone. And that's, that's what I sort of thought metal was about. When I got into metal, I was 12 or uh, 11. It was because I saw an Iron Maiden poster. And mm. uh, I loved the poster, so I bought the tape because it was on special. Yeah. <laughs> and um, through through Maiden, like, you know, Bruce Dickinson and his love of history, et cetera, I started sort of learning a little bit more about history and becoming interested in different topics. And mm. I think the more you expand your mind and your horizons, like I can speak Thai, we've been there quite a few times and done a lot of Asian sort of um, country travel uh, with the kids. 
that um, your borders kind of open up and and it's not just also a white Australia thing. It, it works the other way too with like other people that sort of, you know, don't want to sort of mix, you know what I mean? Like everyone sort of has to be a little bit free on, on both sides of the fence to kind of to, to mix together and I sort of, I like how the Greens kind of say, let's not focus on all these kind of policies. Let's worry about like things could be better. Back mm. when the government used to own the power stations and before it was freelanced and even technology, like an SMS, you know, the, some of the phone plans are better now, but the average prepaid plan, uh, an SMS works out to be something like five or 10 cents. And I think that it's something like 5,000% inflation on what it actually costs them to, to do. And I know it sounds a bit like communism, but the idea that we own the most essential services and that we put money back into those things and we try and sort of make it better and fairer for everyone, I'm I'm very on board with that. I think that we've got uh, a massive class difference in Australia, uh, massive class and differences, and I don't think uh, there's some good money, there's some good programs, but I still think we've got a long way to go before we sort of have people who are flying around in private jets saying that they can talk about uh, whatever, you know. I think all of Australia would agree, and it's like I don't think you'd actually understand what half of Australia is actually about, Mm. you know. Uh, And I I just think that um, with politics, until you actually cut the wages, which is going to be very difficult because you're going to have to have people that are going to vote themselves to have less money, you're only going to ever get people that are interested in making cash versus people who are actually interested in making social changes and making social difference. So, mm. yeah, uh, didn't want to get too heavy on the politics there with you, sorry, but, yeah, just... Uh, no, that's um, all right. No, it's, it, look, the, the podcast is a platform for any comp. That's the beauty of it. Until someone censors me and it's just not going to happen, um, you yeah. know, until I'm Joe Rogan size or something like that, it's not going to happen. Talk <laughs> about whatever you want to bring up, you know. it's uh, Look, it's always good to talk to... Look, the important thing is we live in a democracy and you're allowed to have an opinion and long may that be the case. That's that's the main thing is that respect different ideologies, different opinions and the like. But, um, look, there's many things that I'd change, but that's me. You know, by and large, there's a couple of things. You know, my uh, father-in-law was from Croatia and um, he had to leave because he was going to get killed. So we've got got family members that – close family members that have been through that, that sort of thing. And if you – I used to work with a guy who was from Bosnia and he was just telling me the way that things went south. He said um, one week you had people that were your neighbours and within a month those people were wearing uniforms and hitting people over the head with batons and it just went south. Some of the stories were just outrageous and that was before they fled. And um, I just – that and, um, I don't know, news stories from around the world, I guess – a lot of people say to me, why do you make horror when the world's so full of horror? And it's like, what we make is fantastical to me. It, it's mm. just the grown-up version of um, of a, a Cinderella story, you know. Um, but actual real horror, all you got to do is like the Skyhooks there, turn on your TV. <laughs> there it is every night, you know what I mean? The Skyhooks, yeah. The old Sharpies <laughs> band, I like them. I've played a few of their songs. Women in Uniform, that's one. The Iron yeah. Maiden Cut. Um, yeah, um, I I grew up as a kid with Cheryl, Shirley Strong used to do Cheryl's Neighbourhood and it was like mm. a, a kid's TV show in the mornings and um, 
which was actually a trivial pursuit question I got right the other night too. So <laughs> that down at the pub or was that or, or at home, no, no, just chillaxing? Here at home, here at home um, we play board games, uh, boggle, uh, trivial pursuit, and um, uh, Scrabble. And my my wife is a terrible speller and absolutely amazing at Scrabble. And she'll just come out with these words, and I have to check it in the Scrabble dictionary. And I'm like, how did you know that? And she goes, mm. oh, I didn't. I just thought it sounded like a word. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and here's me. I'm writing, you know, novellas and stuff, and um, I'm losing by 150 points. But uh, I've never been very good at anagrams. And to me, Scrabble is basically anagrams, yeah. you know, sort of so. And she'll go, give me a look at your letters. And she'll go, oh, look, you could do this. And it's like, oh. Okay, that was better than the eight points I got. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that and the Trivial Pursuit was uh, – it's a hand-me-down from when um, my wife was a, a child. So it's the it's a full 80s version. Mm, so nice. you have to think – which makes it kind of fun because it's like, in 1984, what pop band? And we're like racking our brains. And the answer was Duran Duran. And mm, yeah. I wouldn't give Duran Duran as a pop band, you know. Like I, I think of them as like – sort of alternate rock from that era kind of thing. So hmm. just that that whole trying to – and there was a question the other night. I can't remember what it was, but the answer to what that is has actually changed in what we reference it to. And it's just – yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. Um, and we're saying, oh, should we buy a modern version? And it's like, oh, we're, we're terrible at sports here. We're not a – well, my daughter plays basketball and we um, my son skateboards and scooters and um, my wife's sort of trying to learn to skateboard on a straight – and mm-hmm. uh, I can drop in on his scooter. But um, as far as like following footy and that sort of stuff, I'm not one of those kind of households. We're more about music and art. Mm-hmm. And uh, so whenever the orange questions come up, the sport ones, it's just – It's a hard just, pass, is it? Yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> idea. You know. In 1985, who won the oh, – I don't know. Um, yeah. I think the question we've got right so far was uh, my son. It was the what mascot represents the Footscray football team and the um, – Canterbury uh, Bankstown. Canterbury Bankstown, yeah. The CEO yep. didn't even – it was the Bulldogs. And she, she knew it. And he was like, oh, did you know that? And she goes, because that's one thing I do know. And I was like, well, there you go. So, um, yeah, but we're, we're one of those families. Uh, September here in Brisbane, we've got River Fire, but there's uh, a lot of visual art stuff that sort of goes up. They're doing a mm-hmm. uh, sort of display. Uh, a couple of months ago in the city, they had a um, – uh, it was like art by night and it was all these things done in the botanical gardens. There was like eight different artists who had pieces out. So we'll sort of – we'll go to that sort of thing and we'll take the kids to the gallery and stuff. And Yeah. Uh, yeah, and my wife's a painter. That actually does most of the makeup and stuff for all the, the clips. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then no, that looks great. Yeah. I love what you guys are doing, especially um, what you're doing with uh, Vegas Rhythm Machine as well. Um I got into that after we connected and the interview was lined up. The chat was oh, lined up. The Vegas Rhythm Kings. <laughs> yeah, for Kings, sorry. Vegas Rhythm Kings, sorry. But I've got, I've got, I've subbed on YouTube and I just love that old school pungent stench groove you've got going on. It's, it's so funny because like I, I remember when um, For God Your Soul, For Me Your Flesh came out. You know, like, and because I, I went to death metal very early, we were there for the first wave, and um, I, it was like 1989. This guy saw my Iron Maiden shirts, and he's like, All right, you listen to metal, and I'm there, and he's like, Come over here, I'll show you some metal. And he had like Creator and Bolt Thrower and Obituaries, slowly we rot. They didn't even have two albums out at the time. Mm. Um, and I listened to all this stuff, and I'm just like, Whoa, this is a bit of a leap from Iron Maiden. Mm. And he burnt me a cassette. Um, of on one side had spiritual healing and the other side had leprosy. 
And that's actually how I learned to sing, by copying Chuck Schuldner. And um, we had a band back when we were teenagers, and there was a guy who said he was going to be this singer, and he was trying to sing. And I said, oh, I can do it better than that. They all looked at me, was like scrawny and 14. And they're like, here, handing me the microphone. I was like, bro. And they're like, oh, you, you can do it. <laughs> hmm. And we sort of, you know, we, we were sort of, uh, we had a bit of groove, but we're heavy. But I always had a, a bit of a thing for Pundit Stench. And um, it was about three albums in or the four albums in, I can't remember. But I got in touch with Martin Sharang and basically said, hey, would you work on a track together? And that's nice. where got a surgical steel came from and we still laugh about it now because uh yeah as you said i'm not really a solo player you know i'm a, more of a sort of a, just a rhythmy player and the solo we did on that track is amazing uh, and mm. it annoys you to this day that the best solo he's ever done wasn't in his own band <laughs> <laughs> i had them on the other night actually on the um on the uh, google home mini thing and yeah i mean the recording quality isn't there you know they never really had the budget to do something that was um was was going to produce something that sounded like Carcass or what have you. But, yeah, Pungent Stench, still still a great band. The songs are there, I think. That's yeah. the key thing. The songs are there and they endure. And, uh, to me, smooth production is um, like I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm into that sound of black metal, like let's use one $3 microphone in the middle of a room. Hmm. But um, you can listen to a band and they can be so overproduced that you're just not sure what you're actually hearing. Um, I listened to a band the other night I'd never heard of called, uh, I think it was called the Gemini Syndrome. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure that was their name, and, mm. and it was called uh, IDK, I don't know, And um, which I do like the shortening of IDK. for a, not, Yeah, I think that's quite clever. But um, the singer looks like Colonel Sanders, um, and legit can sing and they sort of go heavy and soft and they're all over the place but like it's so produced you're just not sure what the actual music would sound like without the 4,000 hours of sort of studio engineering if you know what I mean and um, when I asked Rick Roz to um, join the band um, he was like yeah yeah he goes I've already been listening to Demonic Drug Peak because the guy who did our logo showed it to him. Hmm. And he goes, I've got a whammy solo already written for it. And I was like, oh, okay, you don't want to work on a new one? He goes, no, no, I, I want to do like the the, the the Rick Ross version. We call him Razor is his nickname. Mm-hmm. I want to do the Razor edition of Demonic Drug Pig. And Simon was like, well, as you can hear from Demonic Drug Pig through as we go along, the production's getting better. And um, it's all done in Simon's little studio he built, and he's self-taught, so he, he's getting better and better. And he was like, oh, should I go back and, you know, we'll re-record the whole thing? And I got in touch with Rick, and Rick was like, no, no, don't don't touch it. He's like, that that rawness that's in that song, he goes, people are too scared to put something out these days that's, that's just that little bit underproduced, you know? So, um, and for me, I kind of, I, I like it because it sets like a, a, a marking point. That's where we started in the sand. And you listen to Rape by Ghosts, and yeah, the quality's very different. We're getting better, you know. But you go back to Demonic Drug Pig, and, and the song's still there, the music's still there, but the production, yeah, it probably could be a little bit better. Hmm. And, you know, the vocals were a little bit muddier and stuff, but um, it, it really is like there's the beginning point, and I'm really quite proud of it. And I think um, with Vegas Rhythm Kings, I, I wrote all the music played all the bass and guitars and vocals and um, wrote most of it on an acoustic or actually with it, I've got a Dean Razorback that I imported from the States. Uh, there's one good thing about the GFC is when our dollar went up in America, 
um, they were about 4,000 in the music shop and they were 1,000 bucks. I got one imported from the States in a hard case. So mm. um, I bought I it over. Same. Yeah, I did the same yeah. at that time. I went to New York and bought a bunch of guitars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you, you can't even ship guitars now because um, eBay has some – a few years ago, they changed who it is that brings them through, and now they try and charge you this massive importation tax yeah. at the hub. Yeah, so once upon a time, it just go straight through. So this that Razorback's what I use pretty much on everything, and I had a um, an off uh, BC Rich War Beast that um, was kind of green. There was something wrong with the paint that came out of the factory, and it needed uh, some of the frets put back down. And Kerry King was actually in the country for Soundwave when it was back at the headquarters, and he dropped in because you know he's BC Rich sort of endorsed. Hmm. And he was like, "Wow, what's what's wrong with this guitar? Why is it green?" And they're like, "Oh, it's, it's one of the ways it came out like that." And it's like the guy that um, plays it plays in this death metal band, Vegas Rhythm Kings. And he was like, "Oh, does he want me to sign it?" And they rang me, and I was like, "No, don't." <laughs> and he thought that was hilarious. I'm like, "I'm not really into scribble on guitars." No, I'm not really yeah. So he signed a photo for me instead, and they put that in the case. But yeah, I don't I don't really like signing guitars because I get a bit. I like to polish them and keep them clean. Hey, did you have um, one of Brian Hoffman's guitars too? Was that you? Yeah, that's me. I've actually yeah. got um, it, it's a it's a hybrid. So the body is a Gibson Flying V. The hmm. neck is a handcrafted. Um, uh, basically like the scarab neck that Hoffman made on the, the scarab guitars mm-hmm. and um, the electrics and everything else uh, is all done by Neil Moser. Um, for those who don't know, Neil was the guy who used to work with BC Rich in the late 70s, early 80s, designed the, the 10 string. I think it's the Rich Bitch it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but, yeah, and he, he designed the electrics, et cetera, for it. So it's a, it's a one-of-a-kind um, V that um, honestly doesn't get played. It's been played once, I think, uh, under the name Death Jester. I wrote a quick track that I played. It's like only a minute long just mucking around with a, like a home studio thing, but hmm. it's, it just sits up in uh, the corner of my room as a uh, It's a museum show. piece, is it? <laughs> yeah, basically. It's kind of like um, it's one of a kind and um, the guitar shop in town's always like, you know, we could move that thing for you. And I'm like, I, I, I don't have any, any – I'd rather the guitar than the cash kind of thing. So, so did Brian make that for you or was that, yeah. was that a special order? So because um, yeah, It was Brian, a special order for me. Yeah, because I, I, I'm sure you know this. There's a lot of conjecture. It was about 10 years ago or so. Some kid in Australia, some kid here did try to get a guitar made and it never turned up. Did you see that? I like- Alex Miller, yeah. Oh, you know all about it. Gosh, you know all about it, yeah. Yeah. I, I was um, – there was a thread at the time and I, I I commented on it and some guy commented back and he was like, oh, yeah, we're all DSI fans. We don't want to think he was a douchebag, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't bother replying but um, the reason I said, like, you know, that you should probably talk this out with Brian a bit more is because – it wasn't because I was a DSI fan. I actually was doing ads for Brian. Um, mm-hmm. I did something for Kelly Slater, the vocalist from Atheist, had a um, bar as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I can put on that radio voice when I need to. And was doing a lot of those, you want your own custom metal guitar? You need a – and, yeah, so mm-hmm. I did uh, a few adverts for him. And um, basically my neck was more of a payment for the advertisements that I've done and okay. put together for and it just was lucky enough that my mother-in-law um, was in the States because my brother-in-law lives in the States. And uh-huh. so um, he shipped it to my brother-in-law 
for, for nothing, you know, like postage inside America isn't very expensive. And she bought it home in her suitcase. So the whole thing with Alex Miller was that um, somewhere along the way, as far as I can understand, and I've seen a picture of the original invoice, it's got a, a, a figure and it says plus shipping, but the shipping was meant to be like a cost on top of that cost as well, and they mm-hmm. could never agree on that cost. And, of course, as you know, with customs and everything blowing out, the cost of the actual shipping the guitar became almost as much as what the guitar was. And then um, Brian kind of did do the wrong thing. He sold the guitar because he didn't think it would ever get to Australia uh, to pay for his wedding. Oh, and he didn't give the kids money back. No, as far as I know, he didn't get a refund. Yeah, it's so, not good, yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of where it stems. So I, I stepped back from that one and sort of say, you know, that's that's on you. And I, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I never really commented on it much after that, you know what I mean? Sort of um, that's kind of between them. I understand where the, where the mistake happened and, you know, um, a lot of people in the States kind of go, well, when you when you invest in a custom shop, if it goes broke, you lose the money and stuff. But I, I do feel that Brian could have, um, you know, he sold the guitar. He could have done some more to make up for to the money that was lost because it was a substantial sum of money. It was a couple of grand. Yeah. Yeah, well, it wasn't like a few hundred; it was a couple of grand. So, well, I think um, it, it's, he's his rep as a as a luthier. After that, I mean, there was people from all over the world commenting on that one there. So, I mean, I, I think anybody yeah. who wanted a Hoffman built guitar, the Scarab, was yeah. probably wouldn't have ordered one after that if he was still in business. And and it's so funny because there, there's actually a site. There's two. I had one. I took mine down. It had about eight thousand members, and I, I suspended it because I just didn't want to be involved in the whole project anymore. But there's another one run by a guy overseas who's actually got two of his guitars or maybe even three. And there's quite a few people that have the Scarabs that got them and the mm. beautiful guitar. And um, the quality of the neck I got was absolutely amazing and it was designed to be that short, um, you know, mimic the um, the Gibson V. So okay. it, it was made to that, I think it's 25.5 scale or something they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it was Beautiful piece of gear, uh, rosewood fretting and everything, you know, really nicely done. But um, the whole deal that went down, like, yeah, there, there was there was a reason for Alex Miller to be upset, you know what I mean? Like, uh, a very good reason. And there's probably a reason why Amon's never gotten off the ground again and why I think Brian actually still does work for Dean. But uh, I don't think it's something that they um, announce, you know, uh, on the front page yeah. like they used to anymore, you know, like it used to be one of their sort of uh, trademarks is not only that, but, you know, we've got the, the founder of Deicide um, as a luthier. I think now he just, yeah, it's like just keeping quiet out the back. So Yeah, but, yeah, just build guitars and probably stay away from social media. Yeah, stay away yeah. from social media. Well, so I, I tried talking to them online and, and uh, I can't remember which one of the brothers I spoke to very quickly via socials, uh, just on a private message, you know, direct message or whatever. But it was literally he just deferred me to the other one. He gave me the other brother's email address and say, ask him. I think it was ask him, email address. I did that, heard nothing, and I just thought, no, they're not interested and they're not, they're not interested if they want to stay away from the public eye. But this is when Amon was actually coming back. So coming I thought back. they might have needed to talk about it. Well, see, I, I, um, uh, I know that the other brother, Eric, uh, as Glenn Benton, said um did a lot of steroids he was the muscly one yeah uh, it's funny because um he, he can be quite gruff he was a massive fan of the vegas rhythm kings dearly beheaded film clip 
Uh, mm-hmm. He used to post it all the time. And when we made that video, we're like, oh, this will be a great idea. And then when we finished editing, we're like, oh, my God, what have we done? <laughs> it's a pretty loose film clip. And then um, he he loved it. And I was like, yeah, that's really cool. But um, I was talking to Scott, and Scott was telling me that when um, they supported the aside, this is back in the 90s, misery, mm-hmm. um, that um, he, was a, he was a real prick um, and basically – someone loaned him a head to use and he was having a big whinge about it and the other guy that loaned the head, the other stage guy, was also a big muscly guy and Scott mm-hmm. said he was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> but it, it, it never sort of eventuated into anything, but he said, yeah, he had a real real sort of attitude problem. Um, and he said Brian was uh, really, really nice. And, um, yeah, the, yeah the, he said Benton was quite quiet and the uh, drummer, what's his name, Steve? Ashheim. Yeah, Steve Ashheim. Mm. Uh, he actually wrote quite a lot of the riffs people don't know either. Yeah, he writes the music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's Glenn's yeah. lyrics, but I think they're Glenn's and Steve's lyrics. But it's, I mean, that was, yeah. I, I knew, I didn't know, I shouldn't say I knew Ralph, but I had a, a number of interactions with Ralph. Me um, too. I used to talk with Ralph Santola in emails. He was a lovely yeah. chap. Yeah, was, yeah. Well, you, same as me. And I had a couple of chats to him. One made the podcast, one was a lot longer, and he didn't want it out there. I don't know why. He didn't want it yeah. out there. He he just there was something in it that he didn't want to tell me. Yeah, yeah. It was. He didn't. He didn't even throw shade at anybody. He was very honest about things. He told me about Jack Owen, what was going on there, and he goes, "I don't care if that gets out, whatever." But then he, um, but you know, this, him leaving Deerside is what I'm sort of talking about, you know. And that was about that time when Jack left, and um, yeah, it wasn't even that. I'll never know. I'll never, never ever know. But yeah, me, was, me either, because the thing is with Jack Owen, because uh, I'm friends with him as well whenever i ask him anything he will talk about anything except dsi yeah it's 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 just like no nah, i won't even talk about it don't want to go there so i don't know what the whole thing is there but there's there's some sort of um uh, bad blood or or something you know what i mean like it's uh it's a bit of a no-go subject, so. Well, just to give me – I'm just making a time check here just so I can edit this bit out. Look, I was told it was about money and stuff. Same thing with Paula Lender and Cradle of Filth. Mate, these guys who actually write the fucking music don't actually get due credit. They might get – but, like, they might get the songwriting – you know this. You're one of the few people that will get this. Oh. They get the songwriting credit but none of the publishing. None and, of the publishing, yeah. You know. That's why Simon left Demi Borger. You know, the big, tall-ass guy that can sing really nicely – who is that? Sorry, which which uh, member? Simon from Dimmy Borger. Okay, yeah, he, he's the guy who in children, uh, Progenies of the Great Apocalypse. He's the one who sings. You know, discover the ancient. Oh right, like, yeah, yeah. He's uh, well, he was in like another sing- band too. He was in the yeah. other band at the same time. What was the other band called? I can't, I can't remember. remember. Was it not Borknagar? Was it? He's like seven foot tall, man. But mm. um, it was the same thing. He was writing music and getting credits, but not getting any of the publishing money and sort of. That's one of those things where um, at first we sort of sold a couple of T-shirts and some coffee mugs and stuff like that, and that was more just that interest to see who does it. But now I more just do things like I'll make up stubby coolers and coffee mugs and just say, hey, if you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and and share it with three friends, I'll send you some free merch. And that's that's kind of what we do with it now because – I don't want to feel like I'm running a small business, <laughs> like like yeah. John's beating the coffee shop. You know what I mean? And, and it can get a bit a bit tedious, sort of like like that. And then it was kind of a, a bit of fun at first. And even with Vegas Rhythm Kings, I think we sold some wine there at one stage. <laughs> um, 
had some clean skins uh, or clear skins, is that what they call them? Clean, sure. clean skins, yeah. You're right, yeah. 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 You labelled uh, them, did you? You got the label and put it on the clean yeah, skins just, and sent it out. Yeah, just soaked the label off, made this awesome label up at the print shop, glued them on, and uh, someone sent me a photo of one the other day because they're like, oh, look, I've still got one of these. Is like up with their favourite guitar on a speaker hmm. and um, neighbourhood dog. And... Um, <laughs> It was Coffin Cabernet Merlot, and I had the whole wanky little spiel, like, you know, mm. all wine makers do, and Maynard's probably the best at it. And, um, yeah, we, we sold quite a few of them, and it's just more sometimes, I think, a little bit along the same lines as I, I read that Maynard has a shop in Arizona uh, where he lives, and it's a pussifer shop. And basically mm. because people make, like, the, the Maynard James Keenan, like, the, the Buddha trek, you know, out to see where the mythical James live. Um, they they sort of get the puss of a logo and they stamp it on fucking anything they can get their hands on, whether it's a bag of coffee beans or potato chips or whatever. Yeah. And they sell it at the shop and they use it to to walk back into the recording of Pussifer albums. And mm. I think that's kind of funny because it's it's more, as he said, just about that whole funniness of brand versus actually caring about what the product is sort of thing and I I think that there's a bit of a lesson to be learned in that to be honest with especially with modern music um, you know music I was talking to Dave um, Vincent from um, Morbid, Morbid yeah. now he's what's the name of his new band um, uh, I, I am Morbid Nah, the, no, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus, any other time I'd remember it, but it's got all flow. I, all I can see is the triangle. It's got flow on drums and um, – Hang on, I'll oh. check it out because it's going to drive me mad now. Hang on, because I normally <laughs> know this stuff. I'll wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I'll go – Oh my God! It's not Genie Torturers. I'm mentioning every other band except for Ultimas. There you Ultimus. go. <laughs> yeah, with the V at the front. Okay, cult. Yeah, um, which which is a great band. But I was I was talking with him and I said, do you feel that music's um, you know a bit flooded? Because I'd been having a similar conversation with Kurt from Metal Church the week before, and um, he had this great answer. And he basically said, I feel that it's not flooded. But it's it's very very thick and heavy. He goes. However, I would never want to say anything or do anything that would discourage someone from picking up an instrument, because um, playing an instrument is as good as seeing a therapist. And um, I think one of my favourite things about interviewing bands is that like I grew up with a lot of these guys on my wall as posters as a teenager, hmm. and then to get to talk to them when I'm older. I haven't come across anyone yet who's just an arrogant asshole. They've all been really nice, had really nice things to say, and it's not a false conjecture because kind of like me and you are, my interviewing style is more like we'll just chat. Like me and Carl Willett's got in trouble for nuclear blasts because we talk for like an hour and 30 minutes and we were supposed to have a 20-minute slot and, yeah. and all these other people kept ringing, but he was just like, honestly, he goes, He's just a fuck it, we're talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is great. And we were just having a chat about what it was like. Uh, my kids give me shit about it because I'm 45. I got in metal when I was you know, 11 or 12, which is like 88, 89. So I was there for that first wave. But yeah. trying to explain to them, uh, like back then, you know, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have the internet. Or we did, but it was 
screen writing on a black screen and, you know, a computer was not something you had at your house unless you were a rich person, you know, and um, it was just so different. And, and music uh, at the time, so I said to Carl, we would see you guys in like Terrorizer or Kerrang or something like that. Metal maniacs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Metal if you want to go right back. And, um, you know, it would be a posed photo and, you know, you guys would just they put the best parts in there. And we'd think you guys were gods because you were so far away, so unreachable. The music was just absolutely fucking amazing. I love I love death metal. I love extreme metal. Um, I also yep. listen to classical. I, I don't uh, understand where some people can never cross the bridge, uh, you know, when they sort of say, you know, is, is that music? Is it? And I'm just kind of like, what, what is it you listening to? You know what I mean? Like... Um, even my daughter, who's like, she's an Arctic Monkeys fan. She was into Iron Maiden when she was smaller, but she's sort of more into Arctic Monkeys and that now, uh, which is fine by me. You know, yeah, British good band. I've got to say, I don't mind them, actually. Yeah, their first song, um, you know, look, that dance floor song, Killer. That, to me, they're a band that's progressed. They write their own music. Exactly. And he's, got some, yeah. he's got some great lyrics. There's some great little riffs in there, too. And um, I'm quite happy with the listening to that compared to, you know, the shit that's on uh, – top 10 or whatever it's called these days. Um, but we'll be driving to work uh, or school. I'll drop her off on the way and um, she goes to a high school a few suburbs away and she's got clarinet in the mornings. And I've got um, Nightmares Made Flesh at the moment by Bloodbath um, in the nice. car. Yep. There's a CD player. I drive the car in the in the cold, colder months. <laughs> I ride the motorcycle <laughs> in the spring. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, once upon a time, is all year round, but now I'm getting old and I'm like, oh, it's cold. <laughs> joints, <laughs> joints are stiffer. Yeah, that's what that's it is, it. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is, man. And then um, no, no one ever told me that like, when you get old, they're like, oh, you get old, you'll see. And it's just like no one ever said, dude, when you get old, it fucking hurts. No one mm. said that. I just want everyone to know out there that you're going to feel it. One day, all of a sudden, you'll wake up, you'll be 40-something, and you'll go, that hurts and you'll go to sleep and you'll get up the next day and it's still sore. That magic repair power just seems to disappear. It's gone. Um, Hangovers it's gone. are brutal. Uh, I, don't, I haven't had a drink in 10 years, but um, yeah. I, I do still remember what hangovers were. I actually had to give up because I, I was uh, a, a binge drinker, not so much alcoholic, but when I drink, I drink a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Hangovers got to a point where I was giving myself neuropathy. Like I was having 16-hour hangovers that were full, like migraine, brain deterioration kind of pain, and I just mm. went, no. Though I had this one weekend where the kids were both really little and um, I couldn't help my wife with the kids because I had just written myself off and I just felt really guilty and I, yeah. you know what, and I just stopped. And I've, I've never had a drink. I don't even have a glass of champagne at Christmas or anything like that. I'm just completely uh, a non-drinker. But I see people with hangovers and just looking at them, I remember that seedy feeling and I'm like, oh, God, I'm glad I'm not there with you. Um, and my kids are sort of um, – they're quite proud that their dad doesn't drink, so I'm hopefully that rubs off on them a little bit, you know, you you never know, but um, as I said to him, like uh, if you put all the mistakes you've ever made in a jar, and then you took that jar and you put all the mistakes you made in alcohol into another jar, you'd find that that last jar is fuller than the first jar because most of the mistakes you ever make or stupid things you do usually you're on alcohol. So, um, just, you know, just trying to sort of. 
I don't know, be a good parent. <laughs> I feel there's, if, if you can have a drink, fine, you know what I mean? But my, my family, especially my dad's side, has a bit of a history of um, producing binge drinkers. So, um, yeah, and as they, there's quite heavy evidence these days that alcoholism and that kind of thing is a, is a genetic disposition. Oh, so. No doubt it's a genetic, it's it's passed down. I know it's, I know my mother's family being Irish, it's, um, it, they're not they're not they're not pissheads or anything like that but if it's family get-togethers people drank and nobody oh. got drunk i've got to say but i'm talking bottles of spirits and it's yeah, it's yeah. i'm the same mate i can to be honest man i can not i don't drink during the weekdays but i can polish off three quarters of a bottle of vodka or what have you and wake up and function the next day and i just i, I went and just i had to go and see you getting a vitamin um a b12 injection and um she asked me she actually asked me this nurse she goes uh yeah it was fucking weird it was she goes how much do you drink? And I said, look, if I drink, it's to your point, it's it's probably a binge drink, but I drink not regularly, but not rarely either. It's probably once every two or three weeks. And she goes, yeah. well, you, you, you're, you actually categorize as an alcoholic. And I said, excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> I had to take a check. And, and she goes, well, somebody who can do what you do. Four drinks. Did you say that? Yeah, I saw it, and I, honestly, it, it it put me back because she was a registered nurse. I said, are you are you pulling my leg or what? Like, I mean, completely functional. Never, never fall. Never bottomed out. What have you? Don't take anything else. Um, work my ass off. And occasionally, I say to the wife, "All right, I'm watching YouTube clips tonight of bolt thrower and all the. We're the same vintage. So if I want to cut loose, it's by myself in front of YouTube watching videos. It's just what I do if I'm sort of wanting to zone out." Until yeah. my wife gets to the point where she's just like, um, "All right, I'm 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 death metaled out because we sort of where we meet halfway is that we're both tool fans, so mm. that's kind of like our crossing point, and we're both artists. And um, you know, she's a wonderful painter, and we both have uh, an appreciation of art. And you know, she's great with um, in Forgotten the Devil, the one the uh, Gangs of Old Ladies film clip that Dead mm. Nun that you see the 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 possessed nun." Is actually a very attractive friend of ours who's a hairdresser, hmm. and that that footage is made in my backyard with just the makeup that my wife does, and like she, she's very good at it. And um, she um, drinks, uh, I'd say she probably has three quarters of a bottle every night, or every second night. But the thing is, it never ever stops her from getting up, getting her stuff done. Getting off to work, helping get the, you know what I mean. Like it doesn't impede on on what she does. And the way I see it, because I'm pro drug, uh, my cousin died from GHB, and I'm still pro drug. Mm. Uh, as long as what you're doing isn't interfering with your daily functioning or other people's lives, or you know you're, you're not sort of suicide solution yourself, like you know Ozzy Osbourne sort of said. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you know, taking yourself too far, you know, as long as you're responsible and sort of, you know, doing the right thing. I, I don't have a problem with anyone doing anything, you know, like, and that, and that's kind of, I guess, with my whole political ideals with the, with the Greens and that sort of thing is I think we could, we could move in a lot of areas in relation to drug laws. I mean, they keep it quiet because the war on drugs is basically a war on illegal money. And pushing people back more to um, get the prescriptions from the doctor. Big fat's about yeah. big pharma, that yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, Port Portugal. Uh, yeah. Shit, it's more than a decade now. They, they made all drugs. Yeah. And 
what they saw was a drop in crime, a drop in overdoses, a, a drop in you know robberies, a drop in. It was a drop in the analog adjacent. So it was a drop in things like rapes and murder and all of that sort of stuff that all of a sudden just went. Off. I'm not going to say they went off a cliff, but I know for a fact that happened. And yeah. and look, I, I think you know I'm, I'm probably more on on a political front, more of a libertarian from the perspective that. Where if it's your body, whether it's abortion or drug use, it's all on you. Get yeah, educated, I, get informed, but it's actually your choice, whatever it yeah. is. And that's why regula- regulating things like I don't, I would never touch methamphetamine, but if someone wants to do it, I'd say, well, get educated. But it should come through a regulated source. Meaning- oh, I completely agree, dude. Back, back in my youth, I, I did what we used to be methamphetamine we call speed is a completely mm. different drug to ice. You know what I mean? They both might fall into the same category, mm. but they are two very different substances. And um, I did speed like pretty solid for about three years. And um, the out signs of that now is I have a very poor collapsed circulation. Uh, like it's very hard for doctors to find a vein when I have to go in and get a drip mm. or a needle or that. But uh, ice, I tried once and I straight up just realised that they're not the same drug. They're, they're not and that stuff is not good for you at all, you know what I mean? And, and there's just uh, there's better ways and we could have cleaner ways, uh, pill testing, all that sort of stuff. I'm Absolutely. completely down with it. I remember back before they regulated the R-isomer that they used to make MDMA, um, Hangers, as we used to call them, were absolutely completely different. Real methyldoxymethamphetamine is so different to what you buy these days, which is usually MDE or MDA, not MDMA, and it is a completely different experience, a different high. Um, proper acid is one of my yeah. favorite drugs, you yeah. know what I mean? Because you have this beautiful mind expansion, you have a beautiful fucking night of laughter with your friends and this you know and i think it was bill hicks that said about the you know the, but the guy jumped off the building and he's like you know because he thought he could fly on acid and it's like fucking why didn't you just take a run up from the ground you don't see a duck take an elevator to the 12th floor you know yeah. like, that's just one less idiot as he said and I, have to, I have to agree and um i think it was uh what's the australian comedian uh jim jeffries i was watching yeah. him the other day and he was talking about um you know how with like gun laws in America and you're saying the thing is that someone always ruins it for the rest of us and he said because I take drugs like a fucking champion but Jane Jane stabbed her fucking kids on drugs and ruined it for all of us and I, <laughs> I, I agree with that sentence. yeah he's a he's a cack yeah but I think I think the other issue these days and it's not so big here as it is in the states but fentanyl all of these powders and substances are cut oh. with fentanyl and that's you that'll kill you that stuff is so – I watched a documentary on it because uh, in Canada they've got a massive problem with it. Mm. And the, the sickness from fentanyl, like the from having a dose to, to going through withdrawals, was like a four-and-a-half-hour period. And I was like, what? <laughs> what the fuck are you supposed to be? You know, you've got to have this shit five times a day or you're going to go through the fucking the Jonesy, you know what I mean? Like that's – Yeah, it's horrific. That, that, that's bad. That's that's really bad. It's horrific. You know, so. But this this is where social networks need to be stronger. So, so if people are having difficult times, I understand that there's a percentage that have a genetic disposition to taking drugs and abusing alcohol. I get that. But I think for most people, it's not the case. It's because they're trying to escape. They're trying to they're yeah. trying to make them, themselves feel better because of abuse or some depression or something else that's going on in their lives. And this is where if we have a regulated 
source and a control and the government can tax it like they would with alcohol and tobacco. Yeah. Um, and then we get proper reinvest that money into health and health institutions to actually get people onto the right medication if they're taking the wrong medication, which is what alcohol is—the wrong medication for most of us. It's- I completely, I completely, I can agree more. Like that—that's mm. one of the like that sentiment rings so true with me because to, to me, like, and I see ads like because we have Netflix, but when you know, so ads to me when I go to the doctors or I'm in a waiting room and I see normal TV, I'm like, wow, I forgot this shit exists. And, you know, you're watching a, a morning show and there'll be like four betting ads in a row and then uh, two beer ads. And to me, like, alcohol was not good for me. You know what I mean? And yeah. I had some stupid times on the stuff and did some things that I'm you know, not very proud of at all. And... On drugs, I've I've never done anything bad. You know what I mean? Like I've mm. had a good time, laughed my ass off, and never thought about doing anything like criminal or hurting anyone or anything like that. And I, I would dare say, when I was younger, I I got into drugs pretty quickly and pretty heavily because uh, I didn't have the best home environment. I won't go into it, but you know. And uh, I think Marilyn Manson summed it up when he said, there's a hole in my soul that will fill with dope until we're feeling all right. And I understand what he means by that because, you know, when when you do have shit circumstances going on and it doesn't matter whether you're the most uh, sacrilegious Jesus-following person on earth, if I gave you a whole bunch of heroin, you would feel really good because that's just what happens to your body, you know? And... and People start abusing some of these substances not out of just having a Friday night, like, oh, I'll have a couple of these and, you know, we'll play Trivial Pursuit and, you know, feel okay mm. and sort of wear off in the morning. But, you know, they're trying to really fix like a, a fractured part, like a schism of their personality, you know. So, uh, and that leads to all sorts of issues, you know, and you know, people losing work, losing employment, losing friends, losing their, losing themselves. And I think that, you know, that's because of the fact that um, things are illegal. Like um, my cousin was uh, out on GHB, which um, there's, a, there's a chemical very similar to that that actually is an S4 medication that they give here for shingles in Australia. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people abuse that, but they don't talk about it. I'm not going to name it because I don't want people to go out and get on it. But... Um, very similar effects to um, GHB, but without the um, the the uh, not as dangerous, basically. Uh, and he died from what they call fetal asphyxia, which is where people basically call up in a ball in the corner and pass out and vomit, pretty much like they do from ACDC. And that's how most overdoses kind of happen and mm. is aspiration. And a lot of that comes to from that kind of like, is he all right? Oh, I'm not sure. We'll just keep an eye on him. But no one's really got that kind of, oh, look, let's call an ambulance or call someone for help because we don't want to get busted. We don't want to have a criminal record for drugs. We don't want to have this, you know what I mean? And, and I think that in itself is an illicit problem because it, it breeds this line of fear where you actually are creating a danger point. And that's what I say to my kids. If you ever do anything like that or whatever else and, you know, you're not feeling right or whatever, you just call dad you know what i mean if anything like that it's a, you know you don't don't be scared to go hey i took these things at a party i'm feeling really sick I'll, I'll come and get you you know what i mean everything will be fine don't ever be scared to to um 
to to do that sort of thing. And I said, in fact, if you are going to do that, even just call dad first and double check what you're doing because – Yeah, let uh, me know where you're at. So I was like, I'm not going to come in and annoy you, but I might just so as though I know where you're at and I might park a block away or something, you know. Just, just, just smart stuff, you know what I mean? And, and like – a really good example to me of where I find some people just mystify the world too much is when my, my daughter was at prep, this other mother came over to um, Loki. Oh, it might have been Kendi, one of the two, you know, in the little before school. Hmm. And she goes, oh, I, I just thought I'd let you know that the girls were having a conversation the other day about where babies came from. And Loki actually said that they come out of the vagina. And my wife said, that's where mine came from. Where did yours come from? And this mother was like absolutely shocked, you know, horrified that we'd tell kids the truth about sexual reproduction. And I I don't understand the whole like, you know, we still had Santa when they were little and those kind of things. But saying that babies are bought by storks and, and not just talking about the reality of human anatomy and all that sort of stuff, it's not going to get them into sex any quicker or any faster or anything like that. You know, educating people doesn't, mean that you're arming people. And I think that's a really important thing that relates not only to drugs, um, but, but absolutely everything. Uh, and e- even religion. I got a friend who's like very anti-religion. And to me, I said, I tolerate all religions, but um, a lot of religions actually preach intolerance, which, you know, is kind of hard. But uh, as he said, you know, and I think there's a great tool song about it called Prison Sex that is actually about the idea of people being taught religious ideology before they're old enough to even realise that, it, it, you know, it's just a form of sort of mind control and, you know, mm. telling people that there's a there's a God and people go to heaven and if you don't do stuff. I remember when I was really little because my, my nana was um, Roman Catholic and she used to go to church on a Sunday and um, we, I remember being like, I must have been little because my parents divorced when I was like four or five. But I remember being really little and I was scared to dig in the garden in case I dug too deep down to where the devil and all the skeletons were. Hmm. And, 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 you know, my wife was brought up an atheist. And when I tell her that, she's just like, it's just so shocking to think. She goes, sand is one thing, but, you know, giving people the idea that, that there's a, this person who's watching everything you do and that is going to punish you and stuff. And, and I, to me, I guess that was... Uh, whoever thought of it was a bit of a bright spark because back before we had the internet and CCTV, they found a way to make people think that they were being watched and to try and sort of get them to hmm. to um, co- coerce to, to what they considered to be the, um, the right way to do things. But uh, also with that, you've got a lot of line sitters. Uh, it's funny because that uh, footballer, uh, Israel Falilfu or something like his Israel name Israel Falau, yeah. Yep. Yeah. When he came out with the whole anti-gay thing a couple of years ago, this guy cracked me up. He put up a GoFundMe project and it was a stick man. And basically he wanted to invent, had a picture out of a stick man with a cannon shooting rainbows over another stick man. And it was, please help me raise money towards my gay laser cannon. And his idea was, and he had one stick man at the end, the scientist and then a cannon, and then rainbows, and Israel Folau was the other stick man. And he was trying to raise money to build a gay laser cannon to shoot at Israel Folau to make him gay. And that was like one of the funniest social media things I think I've ever seen. Um, but, I mean, he, he quoted parts of the Bible about a man shall not lay down with another man. In that same part of the Bible he quoted, it also said that men shouldn't have their hair cut short on the sides, which is what that dude's haircut is. 
And um, it's also very interesting too because if you actually go a little bit further, when the Bible was translated back into the King James Version from the older German and Polish versions, mm. the word that was translated across wasn't lay down with um, men um, the way they lay with a woman. It was lay down with children. It actually referred to pedophilia, not homosexuality. And I think that's a really big thing that a lot of the religions somewhere lost along the way. Um, we're sort of uh, completely tolerant to all that sort of stuff, uh, not pedophilia. But um, I just can't believe um, the amount of acceptance or just the way, like, you know, I can't, what's that, uh, George Pell, he got out of jail. That guy mm. should still be in jail right now. Do you know what I mean? Like, I have some very, I vote green, but at the same time, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit all over the place because, like, I'm also a huge supporter of the death penalty. I think if it's been proven beyond reasonable doubt, especially with the science we have these days with DNA and everything, that you um, raped or hurt a child, like the guy. Yeah, rape and pedophilia, to me, are cut and dried cases of you need to be dead, you know. Me, me Dude, if you have a – well, you don't have DVDs anymore because of streaming, but if you had a DVD player that broke, you don't put it in the cupboard. You put it in the bin because it's broken and you go to Kmart and buy another one for 30 bucks. And I don't want to make human life sound cheap, but to me, committing acts like that, you are fucking broken. And I'm sorry, but even keeping you alive in jail is a waste of money. And uh, that life to me isn't something that you deserve anymore at all. And, and so, yeah, that's a pretty pretty wide right-wing thing, I guess, of someone that sort of votes no, Greens. It's, no, you, say, you sound libertarian. You sound like me. I'm not saying I am that, but I'm saying that when I look at my ideology and I go, which one do I match with? It's very tough to say left and right. It's sort of, it's it's all over the shop like what you say. Yeah. You know, I'm economically conservative, but I am socially very, I hate using the word progressive because it means something different now, but um, I'm socially, I would have probably a lot in common with, say, the average Greens voter. But from an economic perspective, have a lot in common with, say, someone who votes Liberal National. And, yeah. you know, the thing is, you're, that's the thing about living in a democracy. But, look, you know, I mean, the, the pedophilia thing, you know, there was a – have you seen these movements? I don't know if it's still active, but they were called Clover People or something. It was on Twitter. Sea Lover, Child Lover, Clover. It was oh, a wow. fucking movement to normalise pedophilia. And I was like, man, if you want to do that, there's going to be lynching because – there's and, no and, way. And and I don't understand. Well, the, to me, that's that's where, like, because I've read um, some psychological books when I was at uni and one of the books was, you know, Freud deal, talks a lot about sexuality and that sort of stuff. And I can't remember what book I was reading, but it was talking about, um, it was a criminal uh, psychologist and he was talking about the review cases with pedophiles and that their psychology was broken and that they were stuck in like a... Um, a point in their mind where, to them, what was uh, attractive and and sexual and alluring was stuck when they were like five, you know, like, and and it kind of and basically he went on to explain that even he agreed that these these people are broken. You can't fix it, you can't mend it. There's no way around it, you know, and sort of, um, and then even just things like there's a friendly Geordie's video. Um, I do love Jordan Shanks. He's one of the most well-researched media people out there. And, uh, you know, with the whole Barillaro lawsuit and that sort of stuff, he's, he's one of those people that we need people like that in a democracy, people that actually will stand up and show that the people that are in power are just pigs at a trough 
and not actually, you know, leading by example and, and pork barreling, you know. And um, there was there's a video that just absolutely shows without a doubt that Gladys Berejiklian had someone in her organisation that was known for child sex offences and basically gave them an appointed job in an, an administrative sort of promotional role and sort of hid them away. Mm. And as he says in the video, this is on your public money. You know what I mean? And, and it's basically a, a convicted child sex offender. And it's like, I, I don't see how there's this this room for any of that. You know, like we've we've got yeah, tolerance and love to a degree, but I do so also think that we've gotten a little bit soft with some things, you know, and people go, oh, but what if it's the wrong person? And it's like, yeah, but those days are very gone. Um, my brother-in-law is actually a very high up homicide detective in Australia. Mm-hmm. And the amount that you can be traced these days, uh, you, you would not believe, not just from your phone signal, but when they know where you were on a certain night, they can pretty much, with all the, the cameras from the service stations and traffic cameras and everywhere, trace just about your exact mm. movements, you know what I mean? Like, and recreate like a video path that shows that you were there at this time yeah. and doing That's how they got Tiali's palm, Tiali Palmer's murderer. You know, that, that psycho that killed that young oh. lady in Logan? And yeah, that, with the child, with the pregnancy and all that, was that that one? That's the, the one, she, yeah, that, that's the one. That, well, that guy, I'm sorry, and I'm, I'm all for the old days, should be in one of those, um, you know, like the rib cages, the gallow cages, where they actually leave the person up there for everyone to watch for a, a few months. And it's like, oh, what's the a giblet? That's what it's called. And so, what's that? What's that dead guy up there for? And it's like, oh, he did this. You know, I, I think that we really have um, lost uh, a little bit of that kind of um, strength in in carrying through on some of the promises that we talk about. You know, we talk about keeping our children safe, and we talk about being harsh on crimes, and yet people do these things and. They, they go to prison and then either because, they, you know, they're threatened by their inmates, they're kept in sort of isolation and, you know, they've got TVs, they're fed and it's just like the last thing that person deserves is another breath, you know. Uh, it, it'll to, be, I'll tell you what, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Prince Andrew then, won't it? Uh, the whole Epstein thing, man, how, mm. how disgusting uh, is that? Yeah, it's just absolutely vile and... You can sort of go, oh, yeah, conspiracy theory, but it's like that island is the weirdest. Like, even if you take the whole thing away from it, just just looking at pictures oh, of It's all facts. No, it's all it, like that, that lady, young lady, uh, Guffray, I can't remember her first name, but she lives in Cairns now, Townsville, the American girl who's at the centre of the whole thing, who's suing him. She now lives in Cairns, you know that? Cyril or Michelle or whatever her name is. Um, Guffray, surname Guffray, I can't remember her first name. Virginia, is it Virginia Guffray? Uh, anyway, um, I mean, you can tell when someone's lying. She ain't lying. I mean, something happened and that island was definitely a... I mean, young young girls are trafficked there and then they couldn't get off. Yeah, there was was definitely some strange stuff. And I mean, and and that too even pinpoints... I watched this great documentary um, just after Michael Jackson died and it didn't call him out. They just went to his house and showed you his house. And there was this fucking room that was done up like Peter Pan. Yeah. And it had all these beds in it and it had double-sided mirrors so from the outside you could walk around the outskirts of that room and look through into that room, you know, with double-sided mirrors. And the door to that room 
locked from the inside with like fucking six or seven big severe ass deadlocks and bolts and you know what I mean? And it's just like, I'm sorry, but that's, you know what I mean? It's like if you rented a house and you found a dungeon and you opened it up and downstairs there was chains and handcuffs and blood over a sink. You'd have to go, some fucking weird shit is going on here. You know what I mean? It's just not normal. And the room that they showed, and they didn't, they didn't say anything. They just showed you this guy's house. And there was no way at the end of that documentary that I didn't think that the guy that lived there had some sort of strange uh, sexual delusion for children. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. absolutely uh, no doubt in my mind because, you know, I, I've got a house here. I've renovated with my two kids. And there is no fucking way you would have a room like that unless you were, you were up to no good. You know what I mean? And, and the thing is, as humans, we all know each other. People go, how could the Nazis commit such crimes? And it's like, we've got all got it inside us. Do you know what I mean? Like, we've all got that streak of evil inside yeah. us. Jordan Peterson says that exact thing. He goes, he goes if, the thing is, if, if you were at the height of Stalin's atrocities or Idi Amin's or Hitler's, yeah. the thing is, look to the person next to you. They'd be participating in it. It's not that you'd be there and the only person not doing this. It's yeah. evil. E- evil, it's the yin and the yang. Straight yeah. down the line, and it's in you. Absolutely, and that's the that's the thing. Um, I actually do quite like Jordan Peterson as well, and I, I've laughed at some of the the YouTube sort of videos they put together with him. And um, he was doing a public speaking thing, and um, afterwards, this journalist said, "Oh, there was quite a few Nazis here. What do you think about that?" And he said, "I don't like Nazis." <laughs> that's all he had to say. And, you know, oh, they, and, they've used him as a straw man for years. The hard yeah, left, you know, and it's yeah. just bullshit. Big yeah. bullshit. And I actually watched um, the other day him and um, I was – I can't remember the Jewish guy's name. It was uh, like Weberstein or something like that. Eric and Weinstein. Joe, Eric Weinstein. Yeah. Brilliant guy. Exactly. Brilliant. Uh, and evolutionary they, biologist, yeah. And, yeah, they had this awesome chat uh, and him and Peterson like – they had been talking for hours and they said, you know, do we want to get down to the Hitler thing? And Jordan Peterson said, well, I'm not really sure because I've been talking for so long. I'm worried I might say something really stupid, you know. Hmm. But they basically both agreed on the whole principle of how Hitler's kind of reign worked and why everyone went along with it. And, and you know, that kind of whole doesn't matter who the people were, why that kind of thing can can happen, and it hasn't just happened there. I mean, Pol Pot, you know, in Cambodia and uh, Genghis Khan. It's happened a lot throughout history. You know what I mean? And 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 it's just one of the things you can't turn around and, and deny that in all of us, um, from you know, since we climbed out of the trees, there's still that streak of of flight or fight, and and depending on how that's motivated, sometimes uh, you know, in, in the wrong ways. Um, people can get quite aggressive. Road rage is a great example. Hmm. I've had people like do absolutely fucking ridiculous things in front of me and get all angry and stuff. And it's not until you get out of the car and they're like, I'm six foot one and, you know, tattoos from my head to my toes. All of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, never mind. But, and it's kind of like, and, you know, I only wound up my window just because I wanted to hear what they had to say. I never get upset on the road like that. You know what I mean? And I, I think it's a really big show because I've had even old ladies like, you know, giving you the finger and stuff in their car and all, and it's just like, wow, like, you know, that, that rage just seems to be um, implanted in people and it can come yeah. out for some of the most bizarre and simple reasons. And I, I didn't even read what it was today because I was uh, pretty flat out at work, but 
I, I flicked across to open a page to uh, search something up and the news headline was something about the police had just broken up a, a 40-man brawl somewhere yeah. uh, in Australia and, and some guy may lose his left hand. In, and, in and Runcorn, just, yeah. Is in that Runcorn. what it was? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. South Brisbane had it again. And um, yeah. just, you know, as, as we were saying earlier, you don't, you don't have to sort of go far to find evil these days, you know. And I, I, think, I think it will always be with us. I, I, don't, I don't think that the devil did it. <laughs> um, I don't think no. the devil made him do it. And, and I, I don't think God cares. Um, Ricky Gervais makes me laugh when they talk about insurance and they say, you know, <laughs> ring God, did you do this? And he's like, I know I was in Africa that day giving AIDS to babies. Um, and I find that line hilarious, uh, and I like him as a comedian because he, he goes right up to that line, and mm. a friend of mine who's uh, very social, um, she uh, just graduated university for uh, social uh, political degree and um, is working in arts and with the Aboriginal movement to sort of uh, for Indigenous people sort of thing, and she's like, oh, no, no, he crosses the line too much, you know, and I was just like, oh, yeah, no, I said, but the thing is it's, it's comedy. He's not actually getting on a loudspeaker saying we should do any of these things or, you know, trying to actually provoke anything other than, especially even when he was at the Golden Globes that he hosted all those years in a row. Oh, he just that, eviscerated them at the Golden Globes. Hilarious. That, that one when he said, you know, he doesn't kill himself, obviously, like mm. Jeffrey Epstein. And then when he's like, yeah. oh, I don't laugh, I know he's all your friend. And I was just yeah. like. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know oh, he yeah. was your friend. Yeah. Yeah. I was your friend. <laughs> he is fucking gold. And. I I, um, I do appreciate uh, a good comedian and um, I love him for that sort of like, you know, can push those whole ethics of like, you know, if there really was a God and don't tell me he's got some design plan because, you know, there's some fucking horrible stuff going on in the world, you know, and um, if there was an enlightened Noel being, then he would make things a little bit nicer for everyone. It's not it's not a God that's reactive in the sense that it's human. It doesn't a God yeah. doesn't have human characteristics. Like it's not something you can do this to and pray for something to happen. I mean, there is yeah. an energy in prayer. It's undeniable that that's the case. But the whole idea that I'm with you in so far as I've sort of coming to the, this perspective that you know when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back. It's just this. Yeah mute entity that exists no doubt but it's passive and and it's actually yeah. up to us it's actually up to us to create the world we want um I agree with that yeah that, it is it's we've got the act we, we can all do it we can collective and right now i mean it, it would never happen but i'm saying tomorrow we could all wake up and wars would be over all religions would agree to disagree and collectively not try to murder <laughs> each other and That'd be awesome if they could agree to disagree because yeah. they, they don't. Do you know what I mean? Like, because no, uh, my Sky Fairy said this at this time, and yours is this and that. And it's it's look. I, I don't look. I, I work for a religious institution. I've got to say, but um, look, it's it's we're all fairly secular. I mean, I you talk about Catholic. I grew, grew up a hardcore Catholic because I had to go to mass every Sunday. A bit like what you're talking yeah, about. Well, with your I, I did yeah. that um, communion. Is that what we do when we're young? I did that stuff and I was about 10 and I said to my mum because I'd been reading a lot of science books and I said to mum, look, the Bible stories just don't weigh up evolutionary. It makes sense to me hmm. and I, I don't believe that there's a God. And she said, yeah, that's all right, but it makes Nana happy, so do it for Nana. And I found that to be horrible because that's the wrong reason to be going to an institution 
like a Catholic church to make your nana happy, you know, like um, I'd rather give nana some flowers or, you know, <laughs> do, you know, have, play a game with nana or do something fun with nana. Nana's dead now, but, you know, I just don't think that going to church because it made nana happy was any reason to have anything to do with the Catholic church. So, um, well, I don't, I don't think, I've got to say, sorry, I don't think the pathway to God is through organised religion. Okay, if there no. is a God, I don't think it's that's, through organised religion at all. It's it's at its chance, and it doesn't work in that in that send, respect. You know, <laughs> send, send more money now. Yeah, yeah. I, I I agree, and and to me, like the universe is just so vast. Um, and the more we study physics and stuff, the, it just gets weirder. You know what I mean? It just doesn't behave the way we think it will. Um, there's some strange experiments that they've done um, with uh, lasers and atomic projection, and there was a really interesting one they were doing with photons that were supposed to act in a certain way. I know this, and when, yeah. Yeah, when they observed the experiment, yep. it acted like it was supposed to. And when they didn't watch the experiment, it didn't behave like it was supposed mm-hmm. to. And that sort of ties in with like Einstein said that, you know, reality is as an illusion, although albeit a very... It feels system. real. And, and, yeah. and what you just articulated then is actually the basis for all meditation which is mm. that observational capacity to just be. And yeah. the more you can observe as opposed to be in, so separate, yeah. you know, you know the whole man- mantra of you are not your thoughts, separate yeah. yourself from your thoughts, which is yeah. what meditation allows you to do. I just find it impossible. I have to swim to, to yeah. get anywhere near that and feel almost buggered afterwards. Um, uh, and I, I find that depression, okay, so we've, we've all got this rearview mirror you know where sometimes you stop and you, you adjust the rearview mirror and you, you have that little bit of paranoia where you sort of have, just double-check your life, like, you know, just to make sure everything's yeah, all right. Sure. Yeah, to, to me, depression is when you stop looking through the windshield and you start putting all of your focus on that rearview mirror. That's mm. that's where things can you – know, your perspective goes very askew. You know what I mean? You fall into paranoid delusions. You fall into sort of down states. You focusing on all the bad times and and you know you're not looking through the front window anymore you're looking backwards mm. and I, I find that um swimming that's awesome for me uh i take the dog for a walk and yeah, sometimes too. Yeah. music uh, as you know i mean david anderson's in our band from soil work and it's funny because the song um uh, stealth Argle, which is still legal in um uh, norse uh, really lifts me up, and I just I just love the beat of it. I love the energy of it, and um, it's funny because me and him have some pretty deep psychological um, chats, like we are now. And uh, he's a doctor, as you know, and stuff. So we yeah we go really deep sometimes, and sort of talk about functioning and you know the best way to do certain things. And that's what my wife says to me because she can pick straight away when I'm sort of you know feeling a bit slopey and, you know, that's sort of on that sort of wrong sort of feeling. And she just mm. goes, take it off the walk. And, you know, so I get up, all right. First couple of houses, I'm like, oh, yeah, come on, dog. And then well, before I know it, I, I've separated. You know, like what you say when you're swimming, that separation mm. of you and your thoughts, they kind of float away like bubbles. And I'm just sort of in this, I don't know, I'm in this moment with me and the dog and, you know, watching him sniff the grass and just enjoying the air and the trees and, and just letting things go past my eyes, whether it's flying birds or cars or just just, just being, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like not just existing. And I think that's what, what mantra and meditation is, is, is that stopping 
being a person, being a named object, being a you know an actual reconciled uh, individual, and just being a living, breathing sort of thing. To me, that's that's that point of um, that's what you're trying to achieve with meditation. You know, like mm. just that that state of just being and even like, you know, taking a dog for a walk only five or ten minutes and then as I come back through the front door, it's almost like coming back out of like some sort of prayer or of a yeah. or a or because it's like, oh yeah, I unclip the dog and you know, I start talking to my wife and all of a sudden everything comes back, you know, and I'm thinking about stuff again and but that that moment that I've, I've taken the dog for a walk was just just fantastic. It was just me and the dog, you know, and just yeah. I think like Jordan Peterson, I completely agree with the man when he says, you know, and I give him shit about it when he says, you know, if you want to start changing the world, get up and make your bed in the morning. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. and people are, you know, what are you talking about? And it's just like, to me, it makes so much sense. I, I, I make my bed in the morning and, um, you know, I, I on the weekends we'll vacuum, we'll start doing the washing and, you know, getting those sort of chores done and stuff because, you know, you, tidy house, tidy sort of, you know, life and just, I don't know, you, you kind of, I completely see the simplicity in saying, you know, start small and start. Yeah. How can you change your world if you can't clean your yeah. bloody room? That's it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, okay, you can't make your bed every morning, but you want to go out there and be a crusader for yeah. this and that sort of, um, what, what do they call it? Uh, like, Social justice warriors or? Uh, yeah, virtue signaling. You know virtue that whole signaling. Oh, it's terrible, yeah. mate. Yeah. it's oh. They live in the West and they live in the West have running water, Hot water, um, you know, access to meals three times a day, a lot more than that because, you know, we've got an obesity epidemic in the West, yet they want to try and change the world. We've never lived in better times is the truth of the matter, yet we want to pretend that it's the worst time of all time. Just how lucky they are. Um, like we have a house. Yeah, we're probably about um, less than a K. It's probably a 10-minute walk from here to the waterfront. Um, we got, you Bayside? Uh, You're Bayside, yeah, are you? Yeah, yeah. Bayside. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm in Wenham. Simon's in the same suburb. Um, we're both near the golf course, and um, it's just oh, we've got a big yard. We've put a lot of work into it over the years. Um, my wife's got a very green thumb, and you know it's gone from we, we on Gumtree for ages used to go and load the car up with big rocks that were free, and you know sort of mm-hmm. lined all the gardens. And I remember we'd be driving back, and the Subaru was so weighed down, it's just about touching the road, sort of thing. And but uh, all those years, you know, it's been like in the house nearly ten years now, and it's mm. paid off. And you know, we have a beautiful big deck we've extended on the back with sort of um, French doors and all that. And I say to the kids, oh, you don't understand just how lucky we are. And you know, my son thinks being rich is. And I've actually got a, a, a client of mine at work who owns two Lamborghinis and McLaren and two helicopters. And I took him out to his house and we went for a helicopter ride. And he's like, not wow. Not McDoing, you know, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's not McDoing. <laughs> and he's like, wow, that, guy, that guy's rich. And I'm like, yeah, and he's the loveliest guy. And that's what he sees as being rich. And I said, but the thing is, sweetie, you have to understand that you have clothes, you have a computer, you have access to the internet, you have three meals a day, you have snacks in the cupboard, you go to the skate park, you know, you, you are rich, mate. You've just really got got to get it in perspective of what the rest of the world is like and just how um how lucky you are to to be here and it's such a a random choice uh, of you know just where where you're born like i'm i'm so glad that i'm not born in some of the the, the third world countries and in almost anywhere some, in africa with with the issues that they've got to deal with there especially if you're a female i've i've, I've actually um 
in Vegas Rhythm Kings, in Dearly Beheaded, you'll see there's a fifth guy that is only in that film clip. Uh, his name was Kyle, a lovely little Christian guy. And we used to work together and he was um, South African. And he wanted to go back and see why his parents had got out of there. And he went back for this holiday and he came back and he was never, ever really quite the same again. And I, I said to him, like, it seemed to have sort of solemned you up a little bit. And he said the day that he got there, the front newspaper was about the police had finally apprehended a guy who had been um, breaking into people's houses and putting their children in the oven and, like, turning the oven on if they didn't pay money kind of thing. And I was yeah. just like, what? Well, South Africa is a failed state. Um, yeah. And look, I love rugby. Believe me, I used to write rugby articles and stuff, and cover for cover rugby for um, Bond Union for the Bulletin. But it's it's difficult to watch South Africa, the rugby side, the Springboks, knowing the absolute misery that the vast majority of the people in that country are going through, black and white, by the way. Um, but the farm murders and just the absolute poverty that a lot of the black population live in, and it's the lack of economic, like access to economic resources, and and the fat catting that goes on. You know, yeah, like well, as soon as somebody's, they, they, they it's horrific. Order, and then they just siphon off because I was reading a little bit about why this last outbreak had happened, and hmm. the people wanted this guy out of jail who siphoned off like nine gazillion yeah, dollars or something. Yeah, yeah. and it was Zuma, just like. Yeah. Former exactly. Prime Minister, yeah, he's President. What, what, what did he do for you? <laughs> I don't understand it. Well, he's man. a he's a Zulu. You see, he's part of their. You know, it's 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 extremely tribal, and he's that ruling yeah. tribe. And so it's just like you, you know, in that respect, you're attacking part of their family, if you yeah, like. Yeah. They're us, no, you're attacking not. me, and no matter what he's done wrong, it will met out the justice. You can't, you know. And but it's like, well, we've got laws. This is what this is what civilization is all about: rule of common law. It's what the Magna Carta happened for. You know, yeah. so as though feudal kings just couldn't and lords just couldn't come and take the common man's property. You know, I mean, this is, but it's, a, it's. I mean, it's, I, I speak to a lot of musicians, not a lot, a few musicians in South Africa and the only message I have for them, dear old Robin Ferguson, I love Robin, said to her, just leave, I'm sorry, but like, just come here, you know, start over again. I know it's tough, but, you know, it's, unless you've got tons of money and your, your bloody dad's a diamond miner or something like that, I just don't see how you can survive there long term. And I, and I do know people there. It's not like I'm talking out my ass. Like, yeah. you know, it's just there's no, there's no nothing like what we've got here or in Canada or in New Zealand or the UK insofar uh, as access to social security. Who I watched was a, a YouTube guy. I can't remember who he was. I've never seen him before. Hmm. And he was a very nice guy and he's like, don't get me wrong, because I love South Africa, it's a beautiful country and stuff. And then he went on to explain a bit of what's happening and he said, there's a lot of videos I'm not going to show you because it's too awful. And then he went on to explain if you're going to get a gun and started showing people how to use weapons and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's that's the level we're at. But, you know, oh, yeah. this, this gentleman is basically, you know, sort of sounded like the voice of reason and the voice of reason is saying, okay, it's probably a good idea to arm yourself. And he's like, you know, it's everyone that's asking me if I'm okay, I live in a, an armed compound, so it's all good, you know. And it's like, wow, you know, like that's that's pretty full on, you know. Oh, it's like, lawless. It's, there's no way to enforce the law either because the police, they're under-resourced and overstretched and there's, there's, I mean, that's why they're all trying to... One of the videos that he actually showed that made me laugh, he was like, and this is our police force, the guy was holding two shotguns and he, he circled it and he was holding them under his arms like they were broomsticks, pointed at the other police officer while they were talking. Hmm. 
And then he stopped to hand him something, and the guy they were questioning just ran away. And he was kind of like, oh, he's gone. And they both come around this side of the van to look. And while he did that, the other guy jumped out of the van and ran the other way. And they both got away. And I was just like, it was almost like watching the Three Stooges. And I was like, this is the police force. So, yeah, you know, we've got it very, very good over here. And um, I I think that's one of the things that, uh, because, you know, David's from Sweden. they're, they're a pretty forward sort of country as well, democratically, and they you know they take care of their people. I think it was Patrick Jensen that I was interviewing from the Horns, yep. and you know I said to him how are things, and he goes, "Oh look, man, I'm Swedish. I, I can't really complain. We've you know we've got our problems, and you know people have mental health issues." He goes, "But we live in Sweden, so you know we have a really good public health system. We get looked after. We've got you know like you guys, like a, you know unemployment sort of benefits and all that sort of thing." And you know, when you when you have that in a country, basically when you look after your society, you have a, you have a, a better chance. You know, your society stands a better chance. It's like the chemist um, down in me does the methadone program, hmm. and a lot of people have uh, a bit of a, a an askew view and have a crack at them because they think that they bring all the junkies into town and yada yada. And I've tried to explain to people. I said, you don't understand if they didn't have this methadone program, those people would be climbing in your laundry window at night to get something to pawn to get heroin. That mm. methadone program is actually doing you a lot of good and it's actually very cheap and is a, a much better option than than what the other option is, which is, you know, not supporting these people at all, which kind of ties in what we're talking about with drugs and that earlier, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, I know, yeah. Uh, yeah, things, things could be better for all of us and I, I think that's one of the reasons like, I've, you know, I, I've, we've got a very good here. I've got a, lovely wife, great kids, beautiful house. So when I make music, it's got to be extreme because I just, well, what people call extreme metal to me is just normal metal, you know, it's like normal music. And um, I I kind of like, uh, I guess from Iron Maiden, Seventh Son and Cradle of Filth and stuff like that, I love conceptual stuff. And um, that's where... Demonic Drug Pig was a little bit autobiographical because there was a stage there in Vietnam where I was hitting the chemist up because you don't need scripts in Vietnam. And Mm. with my medical knowledge, I got myself really fucking loose. Um, But also um, accidentally drank shower water, um, not thinking because I was high as fuck, happy on holidays. Oh, yeah, yeah. And was ill for quite a few months. And... um, that that sort of re recuperation took probably a good eighteen months, and a lot of other sort of medications yes, to get back yeah. to a working point. And so, demonic drug pig was a little bit about myself, and just about how sometimes you can, even without meaning to, just you know lie to yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a line in there I think where I say, "Lord of lies, weaver of deceit." I'm talking about myself because, you you know, you lie to yourself. Am I doing too much? No, no, you're not doing too much. Really? You know, I'm eating like 40, 50 fucking different pills a day. No, no, you're fine, you know. And that's the thing. You lie to yourself. And then there's that journey back to, I guess, sobriety is trying to find yourself again can, can be really difficult. It's it's not like as easy as like, oh, I'll just stop that and I'm completely fine. No, I, I know exactly what you're saying about that journey back to sobriety and that's where people need the help because mm. I don't think anybody – no, look, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm going to turn my life to hell and become an addict. It doesn't fucking happen. 
<laughs> I mean, people are fools if they think people go, yes, I'm an addict. It doesn't yeah. happen. It's uh, it's those pathways back to society and and that you know that harsh judgment that people don't don't need. You know, yeah. sorry, I know I interrupted you and you, you think there. I just thought it was so important to make that point because it's that judgment that needs to be removed. You know, it's true. That's that's where I, you know, when people I say I'm pro drug and people, how can you be pro drug? You know, I'm like, well, look, my cousin died. I've done lots of drugs mm. and I still still think that you know the the system could be better in relation to those things. And um, so then when I thought, okay, how am I going to write this into a story? Um, I came up with a demonic drug pig story, which. Um, is a really loose tale about a heroin-addicted uh, exorcist priest from the Vatican who's chasing basically a, a, a drug demon that um, eats people who are high. And um, This is a novella, uh, isn't it? Because I've read it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is a novella, yeah. And but that's, has that, a, that's called right? For God or the Devil or One, isn't it? Two, uh, is it? No, uh, the, that's the one about the, um, the witch. Okay, yeah, I liked it. I've got to say, your writing's good because I'm a writer too. I ghostwrite biographies, and um, yeah, apart from journalism, but uh, I enjoyed it. And you're the only person doing it. That yeah, I'm aware that, of. David absolutely loves it. He he said um, straight away when the money drug pig came out because he was just one of the voices at the end on that saying chemicals. So it was like him, um, Carl Willits from Bolthrower, um, uh, Francesca Palio from uh, Flesh God Apocalypse. Yeah, and Squiz is the one singing chemicals from King Parrot, and um, David sort of uh, read the book and then got back in touch and was like, "Oh, you should have got me to play guitar." And I was like, "Well, do you want to sort of join up?" And he was like, "Yeah." And then we've been sort of hooked up like that ever since. And uh, yeah, forgotten the devil, the ones, the story about the um, the the witch who's sort of in the religious. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I read them when they sent when Dicey sent through. I read them. Sorry, and I'm a compelled, yeah. com, I'm a compelling, re, compelled reader. So I'm always reading something. So things just sort of blend into one. But I, I two things. I remember how I was in, I was very impressed with the the standard of the writing, um, the way in which you tied up the story and the narrative. You know, plot yeah. and narrative, um, and the fact that you were doing it because, as you well know, mate, it's very hard to make money doing anything to do with literature and journalism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's virtually. I, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but there's two ways you can work for uh, Nine Media, Fairfax, or News Limited, um, or you can you can do what I'm doing, which is do content, be, be a writer, like a communications consultant. Um, yeah. I don't see you can do it, and all of my writing, to your point, I I want to make money from it too. But how the hell do you do it? Yeah, and, and I guess that's that's the thing with with uh, gangs of old ladies. Everything's free if you go to the services tab on our Facebook page. Everything we put out, the novellas, the songs, the artwork, it's all there just for free download worldwide. Like, hmm. where there's no, there's, it's on Spotify and stuff, you know, but there's no actual selling of CDs or, or records or vinyl or anything like that. The books are just there. They, I think they're under EPUB or you can bring them up as a PDF document or whatever. EPUB was uh, easy. I did that, yeah, in the yeah, Kindle. Yeah. Uh, it's just made for just for enjoyment, basically. And uh, it's quite interesting because my mother-in-law reads them and um, she's a fairly straight-laced uh, woman in her 60s from Canberra uh, who now lives up here in Queensland with us and uh, we got on really well. And um, so I said, oh, would you read these for me? And she came back and she said the first one, she goes, that epilogue with the the door closing and the priest saying blessed at the sick. She goes, that's just, she goes, really great horror writing. I was like, oh, okay. 
And then as we've progressed, um, Rape by Go, she said to me, was she goes, I, I enjoyed it. She goes, it was a simple little read. She goes, it was far out, like the concept was, you know, right out there. Hmm. She goes, but I was, she goes, it was still, still very fathomable. Um, and I've actually, it's only a handful, but I've had a handful of mostly girls, uh, soil work fans too, um, that have gotten back in touch and gone, hey, is the next book ready yet? And I'm like, oh, I've got like a draft. And they're like, you know, can you send it through? I won't show anyone. And I'm like, oh, okay, you're, you're enjoying the books. And they're like, yeah, the music's a bit heavy for me, but I love the books. And then and I love the universe you've created and stuff. And I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. Well, someone, someone's reading it, you know what I mean? And it was yeah. it was kind of like, yeah, okay when that started getting, you know, uh, like um, people listening to it. And the same with Gangs of Old Ladies. You know, as soon as, soon as people start sort of enjoying it, that that's kind of why I do it. I do it because I like it. And... Um, I've got to say, I, I love the in the novellas. I love the local references, like because you know, being being from around here, um, West End and the Gabba and stuff like. Because you get sick of reading about Melbourne places and Kilda or whatever in some local books. You know, that's local. Yeah, talking about Melbourne, nothing against Melbourne, but you you know, I don't wouldn't have a bloody clue. You know, but when you start talking yeah. about West End and and the Gabba and stuff, it's like, oh yeah, here we go. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> I I um I try and incorporate that and I. Sort of, you know, because we are here in Wyndham, and um, that's one of the things with me and uh, Rick Ross, um, which to me, like, for him to join was huge because Leprosy, as I said earlier, was one of the albums I wanted to sing to. And I remember when Massacre's first album came out, you know, and Campbell's Classic. Broke. Yeah, Campbell. Yeah. And then, you know, sort of someone showed Rick the thing, and we got in touch with each other, and he's like, hey, I want to I start doing solos. And I'm like, what do you want to join full time? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, it was keen ass. And, um, I sort of email him back and forth and, um, you know, just pictures of the bayside and stuff like that. And mm. he was showing his partner. He's like, oh, you know, you've got to see this guy that I've joined the band in Australia and he's showing him, you know, the house and the kids and, you know, how beautiful it is over there and stuff. And realising that, you know, Australia, like, is a, is a really beautiful place. And also, like, it was funny because my mum would mention William a winner manly used to be called back when I was a kid. Mm. And I, I'd always hear this woman manly and it had this weird ring to it. I don't know what it is. You know when you just hear a word and for some reason there's something about that word. Mm. And it just turned out to be the place that eventually me and my wife would settle and buy a house. And I just find that so bizarre, you know, because it was always this word. What is it about this word? And, and then it ended up being the place that we 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 were married beforehand and had, had both the kids. One was born in Cairns and one on the Gold Coast. But then when we got the house, hmm. um, we were looking around here and we found we got in just at the right time too, I'll say, on the market. Oh, my God. Thank God. Um, Thank God we got uh, in too, yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Uh, this, this house we're in now, I reckon, would be 300000 more than what we paid for it back then. You know, like it's just gone insane. And the, the street I'm on too, um, you know, the big old blocks, about 800, 900 square metres with one big old Queenslander. Mm. Now, as soon as those people sort of die out and the children sell it on, there's three houses on that same space. Yeah, I know. These massive mansions that have big double garages and there's no yard. You see when the whole thing's built, there's like two square metres of grass at the back and a little like pool and a courtyard, but then the rest of it's house. And I'm just like, how do you keep a house that big? clean <laughs> it's hard to keep a small house clean you know 
Uh, I imagine they must have a lot of ma, like the space in between things. I don't, I don't, I'm not yeah, sure. it's like that at tennis, and it's they're doing it now. They're knocking down all the old Queenslanders and putting these. I'm not going to call them McMansions because they're nicer than that. But I just don't get it. You know, I like yeah. my mother's family uh, were at Woolooween growing up at Woolooween. They're out at Sanford now. But um, just remember those old Queenslanders and um, well, the character. This place you know. built in '67, and when we came, uh, moved in, the kitchen was old. It still had the linoleum style bench tops. And the cupboards were that um, bright yellow enamel yeah. with the yeah. steel. It's either lime green or bright yellow, isn't it? It's one yeah. of the two. Yeah, <laughs> same as my parents kept Ergen. And I said to my wife, I said, "Well, what if we keep the old kitchen and repaint it?" And um, we bought um, uh, blue gum, which actually is is red when it's stained. I'm well, not stained mm. when it's clear. It comes out red. We got these bench tops ordered, and the guy came um, to install them, and he was just blown away. He goes, "Normally, I'm putting these in these, you know, soulless modern houses." He goes, "This is beautiful, you know, this old, old school kitchen that you go sort of, you know, just put new steel handles on it and a bit of grey paint, went white and grey." I, I was just really impressed with the, the kitchen, and we got sort of um, old polished floors, and it's just, it's just, I don't know, I, I love old houses. It's stucco. Mm. Underneath the house, there's an old crate of stuff that's probably been there since the 70s. Mm-hmm. When we got the carpet laid, my wife said that there was newspaper in between the lino. She took some photos, yeah. uh, the lino and the old pink carpet that was here. And it was from 1971. Mm-hmm. And it still had like the ads where they used to draw the product. And yeah, it was yeah. like, so this dope, 79 cents. And, you know, and the, the lino itself was this amazing like rose petal design and just. Um, it trips me out to think that's what's actually under the carpet. But uh, no, we sort of like places have character. And I, I find new places can be pretty, but you know, there's there's preservation of the old as well. So, um, but it kind yeah, of falls on both I, I, I wouldn't mind getting rid of it. like the waiting pool here that everyone wants to keep because it was built in the 50s, and mm. I think it's gross because when you go out to the Redcliffe Lagoon, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I'm sort of for and against, you know. Like some things, I'm like, yeah, that's great. Other things, I'm like, oh, I've been yeah. in the waiting pool. It's very irky. <laughs> I think we should get rid of it and get something better. So, um, you know, not not a very popular sort of post on when and what, but yeah. No, <laughs> Put it yeah. Out there. And, um, but yeah, I love the area. And um, yeah, so to be working with people from overseas like Rick and Dave and it's cool the way they sort of view Australia because you know I think I'm in Florida where you know death metal sort of grew and David's off in Sweden you know what I mean and, and you know Europe and you had that sort of fantasized idea because like my family on my father's side is from Copenhagen and you think oh yeah Denmark and all these countries but then you actually realize the reality of like just how much space people don't have and how no, on top of it's freezing people. as well in winter that's the yeah. other thing that's the other thing it's the cold you know like Europe sucks oh, in winter <laughs> yeah our winter is their summer you know what I mean like oh I think I think our winter's even warmer much warmer than their <laughs> summer you know it's a, it was I think it was uh, I can't remember what it's called but it's a it's a it's an Icelandic or Norwegian yeah. show about like the guy becomes Thor and it's got the trolls and the giants in it on Netflix and they watched it with the English translations and I watched it with subtitles in Norse, mm. which was kind of funny because that whole language just sounds like swallowing. Mm. And um, <laughs> the, the funny thing was, was it went 
into summer and they were still wearing like big puffy ass jackets with a jumper underneath and another jumper mm. underneath that. And it's like, you know, come out and enjoy the summer air. And they're like, wow. <laughs> you know, like, that's what I'd wear to the snow. And that's, that's like perfect summer attire for hiking up a mountain and stuff. So yeah, the, the temperatures are, um, a deceptive thing. As my wife said, you go, oh, you'd love it. And every winter I'm like, oh, it's cold. <laughs> no, no, we can't. So, I can barely stand Sydney in winter, to be honest with you. it's. Uh, and I, I went to a school, in boarding school in Sydney, and I forget it. It leaves you. Um, you know, the, the cold leaves you. Now, nowadays when it – I'm not saying I, I can handle it, but I went to that bloody awful spring-loaded festival up oh, at um, uh, Sandstone Point, you know, out there at um, – uh, yeah, Sandstone Point and uh, Ravi Island. And, um, mate, that wind shear, I got exposure because I just wore my long sleeve T-shirt and shorts. It was so cold, I felt physically sick. And uh, I'm someone who I thought I could handle the cold, but apparently I, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> you know? I, um, I went to uh, – I was born in Bundaberg and then we kind of lived north and I did high school in Gladstone. And yeah. in 1993 yeah. I came down here on the school holidays in uh, June, July, so winter. Mm. and stayed um, at a place out in Toomble. And um, – or was it Chermside? One or the other. Uh, and Close enough. I never felt so fucking cold in my life. And I think <laughs> it was like two degrees that morning or something. And the, the guy I was staying with was a truck driver and he was like, are you coming out in the morning running? Because I wanted to see all the suburbs. And he's mm. like, what well, do you want to come when I come back later after a smoker? And I'm like, oh. I'll see you at Smoko. I just couldn't get out of bed. I never felt anything that oh cold, man. Yeah. So I've adapted to it now. And my, my wife, um, you know, it's funny how you adapt because she's from Canberra, but she gets cold here, you know. And, oh, you adapt. Um, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But um, yeah, no, a beautiful place to live. And I sort of do enjoy being able to do that whole kind of, you know, just a local spin on things. Just put a little bit of yourself into your mm-hmm. work too. I think I think that's what makes for good writing or for good music or, or good anything yeah. is you have to put a little bit of yourself in there. If you don't do that, then it's it's. I've done it's the not- same thing, mate. Yeah, I've, in my books, I've, I've, I haven't released them yet, but they're podcast memoirs effectively. But there's so many times where I've done interviews where I've been – when I used to work for Telstra, I used to be an account executive for Telstra and, um, uh, you know, I'd be in Cairns uh, flying back or something like that and I'd be talking about – having to get to the Watane show or something like that and how nervous I felt not the flight was delayed and I really wanted to go just shit like that that sort of links in and I've worked in the sunny coast for years too so I was talking about going out for a, not a surf but a body surf before talking to Blitz from Overkill this sort of thing and because I had terrible anxiety back in those days and how it sort of links in like that was like my second ever conversation with uh, with to your point someone who was on my bedroom walls and I was a kid yeah, and yeah. and how ang- anxious I was and you, you just think shit I'm out here having a surf at five o'clock in the morning there's nobody else out here look how pristine this is at Maroochydore Beach it's literally one of the nicest places on the planet but I'd rather be anywhere else because I'm about to have a conversation with someone who I've been listening to for the better part of twenty five years and. <laughs> So, so funny, you know, like I, you know, I, I have talked to heaps of people um, from bands, you know, from when I was a kid and sometimes I get so nervous beforehand, you know what I mean? Like mm. just really nervous. I remember um, uh, Carl Willits was definitely nervous but once we got chatting, you know, Aaron Stainthorpe from My Dying Bride, 
Um, just just Aaron, yeah. people and, and Chuck Billy from Testament because you know I, Testament uh, the ritual came out when I was in a band. I remember one band practice we sat around listening to it, and you know you have posters of these guys on your wall, and then when you chat, you kind of like. Hey, how you going? And but once you sort of get going, and that you know the, the anxiety just sort of leaves, and you have this great conversation. But I do enjoy that thrill beforehand, and even um, uh, Dirk Van Buren, who's now drumming for Megadeth, uh, mm -hmm. I talked to him a while ago when he did some stuff with um, the old mate from Cadaver. Yeah, and I interviewed him as well on that that cycle. Yeah. yeah. Once, once we started chatting, he was like, dude, I'm pretty much the same as you because I grew up with that same – because I had Cadaver's first album, Ignominous Eczema, on oh, cassette. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, when I was like in year 11, and I remember we used to go and get smoke cones on the hill and <laughs> listen to – I can't do pot anymore. I, about 19, I got stoned and got really fucking paranoid and I've never been able to sort of do it since. So, Across the I threshold, think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 a threshold we were talking about too earlier. Where you got yeah. a line where self neuropathy, um, and, and he was sort of saying, you know, I'm the same as you. I grew up with these albums and all that sort of stuff. And I said, yeah, but look, look where you are. And he's like, yeah, but I'm not sure exactly where you are right now. But you're talking to me, so you've done all right. And I'm like, oh, that's a pretty cool point. <laughs> and yeah. and just yeah, I, I one of my favorite things I think about getting into music and the way we've done it is that um, none of my heroes have turned out to be douchebags. Do you know what I mean? They've all been really fucking nice, really cool people. That is that have, right? How many people do you think you've interviewed or uh, spoken to? Like 600, 500, 600? Do you reckon it's up around that mark? I'd say it'd be probably somewhere between 100, 200. And bigger names, I'd probably say on the, on the 60 to 70 list, sort of varied, like guys mm. from the Tea Party, Nick Oliveri, you know, Queens of the Stone Age and stuff like that. But um, I still yet to come across, and I guess some people are in an interview frame of mind, but the way that I do my interviews, everyone used to say, like, oh, this is you know, a really different kind of interview. It's like me and you just having a, a chill mm. chat. And then sort of later I'd, I'd just take the better parts out and sort of formulate that into an article. And... Um, but yes, just really, uh, just just nervous. But yeah, haven't haven't come across anyone who was a, a douchebag. The only probably awkward interview I had, and it actually when it wrote, it wrote out really well. But yeah. when I was doing the interview, it was uh, Lord Aram from Dark Funeral. Oh yeah, I spoke to him. Yeah, it was more just because of his actual English wasn't, I'd say, A grade. I know, yeah, I found the same. Yeah, he's a good guy. It's just that he's he's a bit, what I say, vous parlez anglais, you know, it's um, it's yeah, not quite yeah. there yet, yeah. And it wasn't yeah, quite there and I was like, okay, so I recorded it but then when I actually wrote it out and, you know, the, the, the flow of the conversation was removed and you were just reading the actual, you know, the, at the speed you read, the, the, it was a mm. fine interview. There was nothing wrong with it but just that was probably the only real awkward interview I had and that was just more based around... Uh, yeah, his grasp on English and and you know his his speed to answer than than anything else. So um, yeah, Demonaz was similar, except I had a fantastic conversation with Harold. You know Harold or Demonaz. Yeah, you know, had a fantastic one of my favourites actually was with him. He's uh, he I think you know you got a lot of these cult you know, KVLT yeah. black metal fans sort of interviewing him, and I think he was over it. You know, because oh, he's a normal man. guy. He's like you and I, mate. You know, I mean, people. Um, what's his name? Eric from uh, what's the band? The black metal band that threw all the guts on people in New York. Yeah, uh, Watain, um, Eric Danielson. Watain, yeah. Me and him laughed our asses off. Yeah, same. Uh, at, yeah. 
a great guy, you know what I mean? Like, and and just, I think too many people out there just forget that separation between the fact that musicians are still, you know, it's part character acting, it's part, you know. Well, he's running a business. I mean, he is one of the sharpest guys I've spoken to. And look, we spoke, I, I, I pointed out to him and he had to sort of pause and go, holy shit, you know, he beat ABBA in the charts for, for a week. You know, they outsold ABBA in the Swedish charts for a week. And he goes, and, and I said, something to tell your parents, saying he says, it's like literally the one. And he, he laughed. He goes, yeah, that's literally the one relatable thing between my parents and I about the band <laughs> <laughs> that they could understand. It's like, my son outsold ABBA <laughs> in this satanic black metal outfit. When I, when I see that um, Jimmy Borger went to number six on um, the uh, Norwegian charts. Oh, Norwegian, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Gateways, which um, has that Norwegian female singer. She's like their version of Colleen Minogue sort of thing. She's a oh, pop right. singer. Okay, yeah. The that does the, the witchy kind of voice in that. And to me, it was just amazing because it's very symphonic and very, very graspable. But at the same time, it's still very extreme, you know, and with some really full-on visuals. But to go to number six, I'm like, wow, there's a culture of people that can actually just listen to music. You know, for, mm. for sonority and rhythm, and uh, as I was saying earlier, I mean, I drive my daughter to school and she listens to Arctic Monkeys and Bloodbath will be on, but I'll watch that left foot; it'll be tapping away. Mm. You know what I mean? She's still hearing the beat. She's still hearing the melody. Doesn't matter how heavy it sort of is. You know what I mean? Like it's there's, there's still there's still that um, raw sort of uh, humanness there. And I think one of the most relatable things I ever heard was Bruce Dickinson said back in uh, an interview I read about '88 or '89 when I was a kid. He said, if someone who doesn't like our music comes to a show and doesn't find anywhere along that show to tap their foot to, there's something wrong with their ears. And I was like, yep, I have to agree with that entirely, especially Maiden. I mean, you know, not, not that extreme of a band, but, you know, there's definitely some good beats and some good stuff going on there. And as I said, me and my wife meet halfway on tour. I, mm. I make extreme metal and sing extreme, but absolutely love Maynard James Cannon's voice. I think it's a beautiful voice. And um, their music, to me, a lot of people don't like Tool for the reasons that Tool are great. You know, it's full of mm. bass. It's full of those kind of long build-up-y sort of... Well, it's like riff. ACDC. It's, it's you know, from mm. the first album to the last one, whatever that was called, the name escapes me. It's um, Fear Inoculum, I think it was called, or whatever, Inoculus or whatever it was. Um, they're very similar. You know, the only thing that really changes is the production technique, but the songwriting is virtually the same. Yeah, and mm. I, I've watched a guy... Um, uh, one, you know those people that break things down on YouTube. Mm. And he's got a really good name. It's like Friedrich Friedenjard or something, and it's actually quite interesting to watch because he says that we don't actually have the right languages yet to talk about music outside of musical theory, mm. and so he, he breaks some songs down like Schism, which he says is a, you know a Schism is a fracture, mm. and if you want to look at the song as a whole, that song has 42 time change pieces in it which is a schism in itself. And just that, that kind of smart-assery as a band, I don't know whether it's done on purpose or, you know, that's mm. the whole thing. That's just what happens when they get together. Um, I find very interesting. And also a band that's kind of gone, no, nah, we're doing it our way and we're just going to do whatever we want. And, I mean, if you've ever read half their interviews, they just be shit. It's just absolute nonsense. Yeah. Uh, I, I read an article once with Maynard and he was just going on about, look out, the Chinese are coming. And it was just it was just nonsense. Yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, he's a lot like that, yeah. And I like that. Um, I watched the um, the thing about his vineyard and he was out there snipping the little plants in the ground and he looked up and he said, uh, am I doing this for the video 
or do I actually do this? That's the thing. You'll never know. And I think that's hilarious, you know what I mean, that he can actually see things so objectively that mm. uh, am I doing this just for core value to me? You know, like the, the, the Bunnings people when you see on the ad, you know, the CEO mm. getting, getting down and getting dirty, you know, like is it, is it that level or, you know, am I, am I actually this interested or am I just fucking with you? You know, like uh, I sort of like that. So um, we have that sort of midpoint and that's where if I've been sort of – got Spotify, thousands of songs we've all picked – and we put on like songs and it's just funny because I'll be riding home on my motorcycle and I can't change it because I'm riding around, jacketed up with gloves and Spotify will be evil and it'll play like Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen and shit that I don't want to listen to. <laughs> and then we'll sit here and they'll put it on and instead of getting yeah, it's what they've yeah. it's just like bloodbath. Morbid and Angel or whatever, yeah. Inside Morbid Angel and just you know just it just has these full like I'm doing death metal today, and it's oh. just random how it does that. I, I think that's um, quite hilarious too. Actually, um, I think it's called apophilia is when people see coincidences that are connected um, that okay. aren't objectively connected. Um, you know, so I, I remember talking to someone a while ago and they were saying that they blow out streetlights when they drive under them, and I was oh, thinking yeah, that's yeah. It's a really weird thing to think because I've seen streetlights go out when I go under, but never have I thought that I've done it, you know what I mean? So Mm. um, so I kind of go, oh, that that must be what they mean by that connecting things without that actual real connection. And there are some weird um, coincidences that happen in life. When I started this new job, the guy that was teaching me, I just randomly asked him stuff about different um, vehicle parts and all these bits and pieces. And five minutes later, someone would come in and ask for one of those or ring up and ask for one of the things that asked about, which is like something that someone orders once every six months, like a blue moon kind of thing. And yet everything we seem to talk about for the first few weeks he was teaching me would lead to someone wanting one within the 24 hours. And it was mm. just, it got to a point where it was really spooky. I'm like, this is really weird. Law and then I went, yeah. I went to get my, um, yeah, law of attraction, I went to get my big bike license that weekend. And it just turned out that of all the places to choose in Brisbane, the girl who used to work with this guy, because they were like, what do you guys do for a living? Like, oh, I'm in spare parts. She goes, oh, yeah, I'm in spare parts. And he goes, what, what kind of parts? I said, truck. She goes, oh, I'm in uh, Isuzu, but oh, yeah, I used to be in truck. And then we worked out that she used to actually sit at my desk. Oh, <laughs> we yeah. were talking about yeah. this. And when I went back to work and told all mate, he's just like, this is just getting strange, you know? Like, it was just really, just, just one of those full-on, like, it's just a big string of coincidences. And I know sometimes... You kind of you feel um, deja vu, and to me, when I feel oh, deja yeah. vu, I feel that I'm where I'm supposed to be. Um, I know that sounds weird because you know, people go, "Oh, I feel like I've done this before," and they worry about oh, it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like I've done it before, and and it's a whole bunch of things. You know, it's it's a sound, it's something that comes on the TV at the same time, and someone walking in the front door. It's like. It's a whole bunch of things that just happen, and you go, oh, "This has happened before." I love that feeling, and and mm-hmm. I go, "Oh, I'm where I'm supposed to be." It makes me actually, uh, it does make me feel anxious. It makes me feel at home. So, so there you have it, my chat with Jekyll Jones from Vegas Rhythm Kings and Gangs of Old Ladies. Hope you enjoyed that one, because if you did, you can find over 550 more just like it at scarsandguitars.com, and also. On my YouTube channel, I'm easily found. Just type in Scars and Guitars Podcast. 
My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, it is goodbye for now.